This is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Kautzman and Brad Kelly. We're a couple of very online writers interested in the dark side of what drives creative people to create against all odds. This show is about art and the people who make it, what it costs them, and what it takes to bring something unique and impactful into the world. Each episode, we excavate the life and work of an artist you might think you know. Don't worry, they're all safely dead. On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture. Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at Kevin Kautzman and at Brad Kelly. Darkness, the podcast about the dark side of creativity. My name is Kevin Kautzman. I'm joined by the singular Brad Kelly. Brad, how are you? I'm doing great, man. How are you? Uh, I am uh, M-I-C-K-E-Y-M-O-U-S-C, Brad. I am <laughs> Mickey Mouse. <laughs> I am. <laughs> I am. I want to get through this episode so I can cancel my Disney, Disney Plus. Plus subscription. I don't think you're allowed to cancel Disney Plus. <sighs> Two I don't weeks. Think they, I don't think they let you. Oh, that is enough. We're joined. Uh, this, is, this is an episode where we have a very special guest who's going to help us uh, wander through the life of probably the single most uh, impactful human in terms of American popular culture, Walt Disney. We're joined by internet sensation, uh, Blower guys, Blower, how are you? Hey, how you fellas doing this evening? I'm doing great. Good, good. <laughs> just to give folks, Art of Darkness uh, listeners, a little intro. Uh, Blowergeist is uh, the impresario behind uh, the great literary journal Apocalypse Confidential. They just dropped their Halloween special. Uh, if you're listening to this in the future, there will be additional uh, editions, I'm sure. Um, he is uh, one third of the Elroy Boys, which is a great podcast to check out as well, um, and has the uh, best GIF game in Twitter on Twitter, I believe. So, um, especially so, when I wake up from a nap, right? Yeah, well, that's <laughs> yes. yeah, but yeah, yeah, Apocalypse Confidential, fun for the whole family. If your family is the Manson family, or maybe in this case, <laughs> the Disney family. <laughs> absolutely right you get, you're doing something mm-hmm. special with you're doing something special with that man i i have I've, you dropped the halloween episode or uh edition just today so i haven't gotten a chance to scroll through it yet but i, I really appreciate what you're doing so thank yeah. you very much all right right on and we'll have links to uh blower's twitter and uh everything in the show notes at art of dark pod and of course we're at art of dark let's kick off Boys, it's already a little uh, little late here in October. It's coming up on Halloween. We are tackling one of the biggest subjects I think that we've we've yet attempted. We've hit some some big air with Kubrick, uh, Johnny Cash, uh, some some real you know household names, but not, nothing exceeds Walt Disney. So, Brad, to begin a classic Art of Darkness question, what do you know about Walt Disney? Uh, the sun never sets on the Disney empire. Uh, <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, I mean, Walt Disney, what can you say? I mean, you know, he's the, the name behind, uh, 
so much of culture, you know, good or ill or stuff you hate. And, you know, I tend to think that even most of us who have kind of come to resent the slimy tentacles have a soft spot for some Disney production somewhere in their heart, you know, um, you can't grow up as a kid in America without being pretty familiar. Um, of course, Walt didn't come up with all of that or even most of it, but um, he's definitely was sort of the, uh, the guy who kicked it off. But I know very little about him as a person. Yeah. If you had to say anything about uh, Walt as a person, what would you say? I think, Do you I, know think I heard, I think I remember two things about him as a person. One is that he's an, he was an anti-Semite and the other was that, he got fired for some advertising job or something because he didn't have creative ideas or something like that. <laughs> it's one of, I feel like it was one of those, you know, those billboards that are like, courage, pass it on. And they have a picture of like Abraham Lincoln or something. Yeah. I right. feel like there's one of those where it's like, I don't know, imagination, pass it on. There's like a right. picture of Walt Disney. Yeah. For someone whose name is in your face from cradle to grave as an American, you know stunningly little about him unless right. you really go out of your way, I would yeah. say. Uh, now, Blauer has done some research, and he's going to augment uh, my more sort of normie tier path through the, the life of, uh, of good old uh, Walt. That said, Blauer, what do you come to this episode with in terms of uh, the great man himself, uh, Walt Walt Disney, the uh, Sorcerer King of the American Century. Yeah, I mean, he's always been a fascinating figure, probably the most important and influential figure of the 20th century. Um, and, like, in a lot of ways, at this point, he's, like, practically a mythical figure mm -hmm, because yeah. we don't really, and we'll get to it, like, and there's been, like, you know, hundreds of thousands entire force of dead trees about you know about this guy and like there's still so much about him that's like sort of cloaked in mystery and i think he kind of liked it that way um but yeah i mean obviously i grew up watching disney movies uh one of my early very earliest memories actually is seeing lion king in theater so that's like one of my first imprints Mm -hmm. um that's when the programming began right right yeah, um, right. yeah everybody's gonna get their mk ultra trickers are gonna, are right. gonna be, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah we, will, we will activate hundreds of uh sleeper agents with this episode um, i hope and they all are going to subscribe to the that's patreon right. that's, that's right. what you're gonna do we'll go in and reprogram them to subscribe exactly yeah. Yeah. um mm -hmm. when you wish upon a patreon um <laughs> And yeah, you know, been to Disneyland. I've never been to Disney World, but been to Disneyland my fair share of times. And yeah, so always had this image of him as like the kindly uncle. And then, yeah, you hear these stories of him being an anti-Semite or union buster, or just kind of general megalomaniac. Mm -hmm. And you kind of learn that, you know, like everyone in life, their persona isn't their person but like for someone who is so huge like walt disney it's like even more shattering like it's even like finding out that walt disney was like into and involved in all this stuff is like 
worse than your parents getting divorced. (laughs) Yeah, right. He he stands in, the brand stands in for a certain kind of Americana, which we all know in our hearts is a lie, but which because America is about the dream, we accept and it's supposed to be this thing for us. And then of course- Yeah, he's the ultimate dream reaper. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah, I want to begin the episode, um, well, I think we're already well into it, but I want to quote, um, someone who we've yet to do on Art of Darkness, uh, Bukowski. I want to co- quote one of Bukowski's um, famous thoughts about um, uh, Bukowski. Uh, this is someone else saying about Bukowski, what would Freud have thought of the 20th century? Freud could not have foreseen Mickey Mouse, Walt Disney making everything cute, everything nice. Bukowski was devoted to the de-Disneyfication of all of us. Someone has to kick the Mickey Mouse out of our heads. <laughs> so perhaps that's something that we'll try to do on the episode. I am going to grudging, grudgingly confess that going back over this and getting Disney Plus, I have come to reappreciate the golden era Disney animation. It's staggeringly good. And we'll we'll come to that. Part of my, I guess, ache over the Disney business is how a lot of this stuff is now lost. The Disney animation style is gone. Yeah. Uh, and, and there's a tragedy. It's, in, it's too expensive. Yeah. Humans are humans cost yeah. a lot of money yeah. to, to pay, um, you know, to do sure. uh, the animation yeah. work. Well, go on, Blower. Oh, well, I was going to say, I mean, there's no denying that he was an absolute maestro. And I think that is a better word for him than artist. Because I think, you know, he rarely sort of put his pencil to paper, but he was this kind of master orchestrator of these figures and obviously we'll get to later some of these people that he orchestrated the actual animators had their issues with him but yeah like it is like getting into all the dark stuff about him isn't at all denying the fact that like what he did do was completely impressive yes still is Yes, yeah. it is. Uh, and so like every every uh, subject on uh, Art of Dark- Darkness, it's a mixed bag, right? No, nothing, yeah. is, nothing is black and white. Well, so let's let's kick off, right? So Walter Elias Disney was born on December 5th of 1901. So let's put ourselves um, yeah, there. He was born in Chicago in 1901. Uh, the fourth son of Elias Disney who it was Canadian to Irish parents, uh, and Flora. Uh, Flora was German and English. Um, aside from Walt, Elias, and Flora's sons were Herbert, Raymond, and Roy. Uh, Roy would figure very prominently um, in, uh, in Walt's life. They had a fifth child, a daughter, Ruth, in December of uh, 1903. Now, I have two books that I'm drawing on here and I'm going to be going back and forth between the books an awful lot. So if I sort of stumble a little bit, that's why I've got, you just, I just have to imagine me with a bunch of, you know, notes and things in the books. Um, I've got a very, very simple kind of basic, almost like a children's level Disney book. Oh yeah, book. I see that. Yeah, yeah. that's good. <laughs> By Don Nardo. And there he is. There's Disney, you know, uh, theater of the mind. He's in front of a camera um, looking like avuncular. Right. That was his he's like America's uncle, I think, is the image they sort of tried to um, 
you know, I don't think you ever saw him with a cigarette, but he smoked voraciously. And, and in oh, fact, that's, that's what killed him. Um, and then I have the, the banger, uh, the granddaddy of them all, this outstanding book from Neil Gabler, uh, Walt Disney, the triumph of the American imagination. One of those, one of those biographies that is, um, just does the, does the job. And I think it's actually very funny on the cover of this. It says, as seen on public television. <laughs> okay. Ah, yes. That's, uh, that's what gets people in, in running to the bookstore in droves. Yeah. It actually, <laughs> it actually does, Brad. That's, that's true. You're right. <laughs> um, that's the well, reading public. So yeah. yeah, indeed. Yeah. So I have a, hang on here. So I have something out of this book about his parents, but what ended up happening is that he, uh, the family moved from Chicago to this little city, this little village called Marceline. Um, and this, this would figure really prominently in Walt's psychology and his sort of myth-making uh, because his earliest memories were of this little American small town. Um, so you can sort of, if you know your Disneyana, uh, you can sort of go, ah, yes, this, this makes sense that this isn't a, a fellow who lived exclusively in the cities. He's, he had that sort of idea of like a turn of the 20th century village in mind. And I think that comes through, you know, when, with the project, you know, when it comes to the, the work itself, but also like Disneyland. Um, but so this is about his, um, his folks. So, uh, oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> they, they started having children very young. They, they're moving around the country right now and they're Canadians. They got only as far as Kansas when Keppel uh, changed plans and purchased just over 300 acres from the Union Pacific Railroad, which was trying to entice people at division points along the train route it was laying through the state. Since the Disneys were not American citizens, they could not acquire land under the Homestead Act. This is really important. You got a, a, a family of kind of flim flam people. There's a little bit of like flim flammery here, right? We're on the move. Um, so, uh, the area in which the family settled, Ellis County in the northwest quadrant of Kansas, about halfway across the state, was frontier and rough. Indian massacres were fresh in memory, and the Disneys themselves waited out one Indian scare by stationing themselves all night at their windows with guns. Whoa. Crime. This was before Disney's time, but I'm just sort of like trying yeah. to get you into the... Yeah. Crime was rampant, too. I thought this was funny. One visitor called the county seat Hayes, the Sodom of the Plains. <laughs> Yeah. So I think, I think these were, these were Disney's grandparents. So okay. we're not, we're, I'm, I'm just, I think it's important for Disney to lay the time and place for this guy. And I'm trying to put ourselves in the shoes of these folks because this is the guy who would end up like making the plans for Epcot center and everything. Right. So you're going from in this life, roughly in this lifetime, yeah. you're going from Indian attacks. This is his parents, his grandparents to Epcot Center, 19, you know what I mean? Just just a complete yeah, wild, wild span of time to think about. Yeah, one thing, one thing that's always fascinated me is sort of the way that like men of the 19th century, and I guess it's not really right with Disney because he was born in 1901, but close enough. But like the way that men of the 19th century built the 20th century and that like how our conceptions of those two things like are so different so yeah like you have and even in 1901 like in chicago it's a big city but like it's still 
for a lot of people, like, the farthest reach of, like, you know, civilization in a kind of way. I mean, it's still dying off, but, like, you still have, like, the Old West even then. Yeah, oh, yeah. Um, in 1901, yeah. But yeah, yeah and we'll... so the fact that this guy came from that environment to, yeah, basically be involved in and, like, essentially not just imagining the future, but building it mm-hmm. is insane. In, yeah, in yes. the urban in the urban rural divide isn't is it's characterized differently too. I mean, you got horses horse crap in the streets in 1901 yeah. in Chicago, right? It's 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 a little the boundaries are probably a little more vague in a certain sense. Yeah, it's a no, it's an yeah. interesting point. Well, so I have a little detour here around um, Marcelin, uh, this city. So Walt idealized it. This is from the uh, the Gabler book. Uh, He later claimed he felt sorry for people who lived in cities all their lives and they don't have a little hometown. I do. His wife said that when he would take a train across the country and pass through Marcelin, he would even dragoon passengers in the middle of the night to point out where he grew up. Associates said that his recall of events and animals in the town was almost total. Hmm. So he, he, we have this guy who, I think when you, when, again, when you think about Disneyland and all the rest, he's, he's trying to sort of recreate a vibe, isn't he? Yeah. 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 With like the Main Street USA. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. One of the windows in Main Street USA says like, propri- like I think it's something like proprietor Elias Disney and <laughs> established 1895. And I don't know, I neglected to like read what why he chose 1895 or if there even is a reason but it makes so much sense because that's like six years before he was born so it's like he it's nostalgia for something that's like a better time that's like just out of grasp right right yeah it's forever fading in fading away but we yeah. can move toward it in our dreams, right? Right. Until until Zuckerberg, his heir, puts us inside <laughs> the the metaverse forever, right? Um, and yeah, I, this idea that that's just a goofy idea, but anyway, I'm, anyway. Um, so I want to talk about this other book uh, from Dan Nardo. This is a, this is quite important because we're going to talk about the childhood. This episode, I think, is going to largely come in three parts. There's going to be very early Disney. There's going to be the career starting, then there's going to be the late Disney. And I kind of want to talk about the childhood because, of course, what is Walt Disney if not an entertainer for children? I mean, it's still fundamentally at the core of what he was. Um, Obviously, became a lot more than that. But um, he was pretty aware, too, that most of the visitors to Disneyland were adults. (laughs) Like Somebody's got to drag the kids. Um, But this book says, it was Disney's fascination with animals that first got him interested in drawing. One day at the age of six, he felt the urge to draw a picture of Porker, a huge sow he had tried unsuccessfully to ride on a number of of occasions. Okay, we're having a normal one. Um, (laughs) But because his family was so poor, there uh, there was no drawing paper available. Then the boy noticed a bucket of fresh tar that his father had been using to repair the roof. Using the tar brush, young Disney sketched a drawing of Porker on the whitewashed uh, side of the farmhouse. Before the sketch was finished, however, the boy's father discovered what he was doing. Elias Disney was enraged, not just because his son had defaced the house, 
but also because the elder Disney had little, if any, sense of humor and considered art and music useless and wasteful pastimes. He believed that a young boy's life should consist of nothing but hard work and studying and sought to get this message across by taking his son into a nearby shed and beating him soundly. Ah, yes. That's that's what you want to do with that first creative urge. Just tamp <laughs> that bad boy. Just shove it back into where it came from. Uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. He, uh, he really idealized the sort of pastoral world. And this is quoting him about these early drawings. Um, he did not quit drawing. He, he quit drawing on the side of the house. Uh, here's what he said. You can guess what I did with them. Uh, especially as I ate a lot of green apples uh, in those days. Anyway, that's all those drawings were really good for. And that's where they went down the can. Childish scribbles, that's all. The only interesting thing is I did them at all. I suppose I did them because I, uh, just about everything around me at Marceline excited me, even the chores with the birds. Feeding them every day, I got familiar with the shapes and the habits of ducks, chickens, and pigeons. I can't remember if I uh, ever made a real pet of them, uh, though I did learn their language, and I think they learned to understand me. What I mean is they come when I called them, even individually, when I summoned them by name. There was one pullet, hen, I called Martha, who used to come over when I shouted her name and lay an egg right in my hand. Um, yeah, and you, this guy's a sorcerer summoning animals. There yeah, you go. That's intense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, Boy, fellas, I, this is, there's a funny, like, Tempest-like quality of this, where at the end of the Tempest, Prospero sort of begs the audience to release him. Uh, I can't wait to be done with this episode. I, I'm, I, <laughs> I'm excited to do it, but also, like, getting even adjacent to, like, Disney fandom and, like, Disney podcasts oh, and God. stuff makes me just want to run. <laughs> like, it's just not a good thing right um in any event yeah it'll be nice to not have to think about the disney podcasts i listen to it's sort of exactly yeah. what you would expect yeah. um but his his uh, uh, aunt margaret recognized um his talent and did begin to uh encourage him and uh i believe she got him art paper and a set of pencils and uh he would do his chores on time and all the rest. So just a regular old turn of the century beating from your dad when you're six years old. Well, just normal beatings. Yeah. yeah. Hey, um, you, you know, one thing, just noticing a pattern amongst many subjects, big shout out to like ants and things that have taken so many of these artists. I was saying about that. Yeah. How it's always, no, you, you go ahead. Yeah, I was just saying, because we, we, we've hit like half of the people we've covered in the show, their dad's been like, I don't care about that art crap. And they've always had like their, you know, a, a stepmother or an aunt or a grandmother who like encouraged it. Yeah. Yeah, it's always like the adjacent authority figure mm -hmm. who has the love of a family member, but doesn't have the responsibility of a parent kind yeah. of thing. Where yeah, it's like, it I need it. I need to straighten this kid out where it's like with an aunt or grandma or uncle or whatever, they can just be like, oh, Walt can paint whatever he wants to. Right, 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 right. <laughs> Tweet yeah. whatever you want, Walt. Yeah. It's just the bird website. <laughs> Nobody will know. <laughs> yeah. Tweet, yeah. Walt, that, that was a banger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's that's a great point yeah i think i think we probably all have that person in our lives mm -hmm. yeah 
the, the person who can hand the child back. Right, right, right. Uh, so I have a couple more interesting things from the childhood. Uh, and one of them involves Walt and an owl. Something happened when Walt was seven years old with an owl. And here's what he said, remembering it 50 years later. Something happened to me when I was on the farm in Marceline, Missouri, there that I've never forgot. There was a big owl in the tree. It was a Sunday. I'll never forget it. It was just dull. Folks were all doing something else. There was nothing for me, you know. I didn't have anybody to play with then. So the owl was up there. And he flew away, and I followed him, and he went over in the orchard, and he landed on a low limb in the orchard. Well, I don't know why, but I wanted to catch that owl. It was one of the, these big brown owls. So I snuck up behind the owl, and I grabbed this owl. Well, he immediately began to claw and fight and I threw him on the ground. In my excitement, I stomped on him and I killed the owl. That thing haunted me for a long time afterward. I could see that darn owl in my dreams, you know, but I was just so excited. I didn't want him. I didn't want to kill him. But when he began to claw and everything else, I got so excited, I threw him on the ground and stomped on him, you know, and I killed him. I didn't want to kill him. I didn't have it in my mind at all. And I don't know yet why I wanted to have that owl. It was just, I could catch him, you know. He was on a low limb there. Oh, so yeah, he is actually wrestling with de demonic forces now. <laughs> yeah, like, well, freaking parables. Um, yeah, because I mean, you have like, what is the symbolism of an owl? Like wisdom or what is, I don't, it's, I forgot. It's, it's deep. I mean, it goes a couple different directions. Yeah, so wisdom is certainly one of them. But like, uh, you know, there, there are, there in some traditions, they're like envoys of God in some way. Uh, there, uh, there's a lot of people who've had UFO encounters, who've had owl encounters just before or after them. Like they're- well, yeah right the yes owls are not what they seem yeah so this is a yeah you're in yeah when you're in owl territory you're in uh you're on the other side of the threshold or something and i think yeah, if you like kill it that's that dark like, the fact that he wanted yeah man that is like if you wrote that as a story and submitted it to your writing instructor they'd be like this is too on the nose yeah um <laughs> because it's like he wanted to possess the owl and like it wanted it for its like sort of like cute, cuddly, cartoonish qualities, which you'd right. see later in his, one of their early animated shorts, This Old Barn. Owls featured prominently in that. Um, he wanted to possess the owl and keep it as a possession. But then once the owl revealed its nature and that no nature is red and tooth and claw, he rejected that and bounced it to death. Yeah. Wow. That's a that's like a villain origin story. Yeah. It really is. <laughs> Dang. Okay. Well, so uh, Walt in his childhood, um, maybe I'll leaven it first. I'm going to talk about his brother Roy, and then we'll come back to the next one. Um, but. Uh, they were very, very close. And you have to sort of think about this time period where Chaplin was like Elvis in terms of popularity, right? And he entered a, at one point, uh, 
he entered a Charlie Chaplin lookalike contest. Uh, he was, you know, uh, he, he knew his father wouldn't let him do it. So he planned to dress up and sneak out his bedroom window. And this is from a biographer, uh, Bob Thomas. Walt rummaged through his father's closet and found a shiny old suit that was inches too long for him. It was perfect. Its baggy pants and oversized jacket provided just the right com compliment to his father's work shoes, which were also several times too large. Stumbling in the mass of shoes, he hurried downstairs to the kitchen and rubbed his finger against the back of his mother's stove. Then he applied the soot to his upper lip. It made a good imitation of the chaplain mustache. Walt went upstairs to his mother's bedroom and stood before the full-length mirror. For an hour, he carefully rehearsed the chaplain waddle, the way he twirled his cane and finally the shy smile. He appeared backstage at the Rialto Theater along with a dozen other chaplain imitators. They were all shapes and sizes, fat boys, skinny boys. There were even a few girls mixed in. Our next contestant is Walter Disney. Walt heard the announcement, took a deep breath, and duck walked onto the stage. He tried his first gag. He dropped his derby, and as he stopped to pick it up, permitted his own foot to kick it away. A ripple of laughter ran through the darkened theater. He tried his other gags, and they too brought roars of approval. The audience unanimously acclaimed Walt the winner. He was elated. This is when he was 14. Wow. Yeah. So I think when you think about that early Disney business, right, it's, it's gags. It's just one gag after the next, right? When we get to um, Steamboat Willie and all, all of it, it's just one visual pun or, or gag. Uh, and, and so that's the tradition that, that Disney was coming out of. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, so we're right getting you know right around world war one ish time but uh I, I do want to pause and talk about walt having another premonition so this is related to the owl um this comes from <laughs> so this this is the sort of childish book you know it's like contrary to popular opinion walt disney was not always a happy and upbeat person you right. don't say <laughs> right so this is a film critic and uh, biographer richard schickel uh talking about disney's depression he also acquired, acquired at about this time an obsession with, with death, which was so marked that even his daughter, this is much later for Disney, but I think it's important. I think it pairs with the owl. Even his daughter committed, uh, commented upon it in her uh, study of her father. She claims it began at a party where a fortune teller predicted he would not live beyond his 35th birthday, a prediction that plagued him even after he sailed past that date in excellent health. He felt that he had, at best, been granted only a reprieve. For the rest of his life, he avoided funerals, and when forced to attend them, fell into long, brooding depressions. He even avoided would-be biographers, commenting to more than one acquaintance that biographies are only written about dead people. He apparently feared that not only would such studies pry into business and personal secrets, but they might have the effect of reversing the usual order of things and somehow cause his demise. While he lived, no book about him or his studio appeared unless he approved the contents, which meant that they all heavily stressed neutral technological matters and said little about the master except to praise his creative genius. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, they're yeah. Laying, laying in a few themes here that we're going yeah. to begin to uh, Very you know, interesting. play around with. Um, in that... And that obsession with death is sort of resonant with just the whole medium or genre of animation 
itself because i mean obviously with live action if you're you know filmed you live forever but like especially with animation it is perennial and eternal and ageless and so by putting pencil to paper you're basically able to cheat death in mm. that way yeah and mm. even narratively i feel like we allow uh death and rebirth a little like death is a more flexible concept and stuff that's animated i mean you see that yeah. not, certainly in like comic books but you know like the whole itchy and scratchy thing right like that's a that's a, a exaggeration of it but like the whole point is they basically itchy basically kills scratchy completely in every episode yeah yeah mortality is more elastic yeah definitely it definitely seems that way and i mean with snow white and the seven doors she goes into a long sleep you know basically death and right. is only able to be awakened by prince charming yeah. and so they're right there yeah yeah interesting well, one of the early cartoons too is just the the dancing skeletons having a having a party. That's oh, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. it's all right. there when you look at it. Um, when we get to Fantasia, it's really spooky. The final passage of Fantasia is, uh, you know, souls rise from the dead on Valpurgis Noct, you know, and <laughs> dance in the hand of Satan. <laughs> this is what happens at the end yeah. of that film. If you uh, just described it, it would sound like a, a heavy metal music video. Yeah, right. like, yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, I want to. That's all right. I want to anchor us. Well, actually, before I go forward, there's a rumor apparently, Blower, that uh, Disney uh, is is not in fact uh, the the child of his father. Is this something you want to talk about? Ooh. Oh yeah, there was, and I think it's long debunked by now, but I still find it interesting. And the fact that this rumor persisted for so long. I feel like is telling about the general Disney mythos is that he was not born in Chicago of a Canadian father, um, flim flam family, but he was the son. He was born in some picturesque uh, village in Spain. <laughs> and that he was the, he, El Cadillo Disney. Um, <laughs> In that he was the son of, not only that, but he was the son of a nobleman and like a, I don't know, like a washwoman. Huh. Um, oh. And that like the washwoman, and I guess there's some corroboration because like the washwoman moved to Chicago and I guess remarried and like husband was like the new husband in America was a circus acrobat who actually <laughs> lived around where uh the disney's were in chicago and so i think that's where people latch on to that and so basically the theory is yeah that he was the illegitimate child of a nobleman and a lowborn and then the lowborn put him up for adoption and that's when he got into the hands of the disney's and that just goes perfectly in with like the whole mythology of like you know born of nobility yeah and married in that not married but like and then taken in by these sort of lowly people who even though it's a rough childhood made him the man he was and then mm -hmm. he becomes this titan of industry and so it has a fairy tale quality and so it's a kind of like weird meta conspiracy theory because you think it's like 
it's almost the kind of thing that Disney would want to perpetuate about yeah. himself. But and and he kind of does it by like not perpetuating about it. Anyway, I found it very interesting. That is interesting. I think that's yeah. a very interesting uh little interlude. Yeah. Well, I want to anchor us in time again here. So we're we were in Missouri, then we're in in this chaplain business, I'm I'm sure happened in um Kansas City. So we've left Marceline, we're in Kansas City. Uh, Walt had a lifelong obsession with trains as well. He, uh, he loved trains. And I think this is evident at the, at the resorts and all the rest, right? Monorail, monorail, monorail. Uh, hmm. He loved it. So in 1911, they moved to Kansas City, Missouri. He attended Benton Grammar School. Uh, he met a fellow student named Walter Pfeiffer. He came from a fan, uh, family of theater fans. Uh, it was this other Walt who introduced him to vaudeville and motion pictures. Walt started spending a lot of time over there. His father, uh, Elias, had purchased a newspaper route for the Kansas City Star and the Kansas City Times. Um, Disney, so Walt and Roy, would wake up at 4.30 every morning and deliver the Times before school and then would do the rounds for the, the evening star after school. It was exhausting. I think I read that they actually, he actually picked up a route on the sly, like around his father to make <laughs> his own money, right? Nice. Okay, we got a little nice. shifty flim flammery, right? Yeah. He did the, did the route for more than six years. Um, now that is, a, that is a lost world. Uh, Brad Blower, did either of you deliver papers? No. No, I didn't. Uh, you dodged a bullet. Yeah. Wow. Did, did you, were you a paper boy? You ever deliver papers? I was not. I was on the youth board for my local newspaper. <laughs> it might have almost been as bad. Oh, that's too white. That's too white collar. I was, uh, I was out there. I learned to listen to Metallica delivering papers in the cold uphill both ways in North Dakota <laughs> in the 90s. I'm like the yeah. last of the Mohicans, man. Yeah, for real. Yeah, I did it. I did it. I had a friend who, who uh, his family were, they were, were very, um, uh, impoverished they were poor uh lived in a trailer park on the wrong side of the wrong city in the wrong state at the wrong time they the whole family did multiple paper routes to make money wow so this is not you know this is 100 years or that would have been 80 years earlier but this is this was a thing that's yeah. gone for sure yeah. um well so in any case i didn't it's not about me but i think it's interesting right mm -hmm. um you gotta imagine doing these paper routes well so they elias bought a uh, buy stock in 1917 in a Chicago jelly producer, <laughs> the Ozell company, and moved back to the city with his family. So now we've got Disney doing this whole round trip from um, this pastoral small town, uh, Marceline, a little bit bigger Kansas City. Now we're back in the big city. Um, he enrolls in high school. He becomes the cartoonist of the school newspaper. He's drawing, um, you know, patriotic pictures about World War One. He's taking um, uh, night courses at the Chicago Chicago Academy of Fine Arts. I want to have a, an interlude here briefly uh, where I talk about his relationship with his brother, which was very important to him. Roy would go on to be his right-hand man and his, his money man, his accountant. Um, so this is from the uh, Gabler book. 
saying that Flora was the peacemaker in the family. It sounds like her, his father had a temper, right? Roy uh, was its protector, or at least Walt's protector. Walt was never close to either Herbert or Ray, who had left years earlier, though they both lived in Kansas City, and he re referred to them as strangers to me all my life, which is quite sad. Um, indeed, Herbert had married a local girl and had, had had a daughter of his own. Roy seemingly had no more in common with Walt than the older brothers did, other than the fact that he still lived at home. He was eight years Walt's senior and hardly a comrade in arms, nor did he share Walt's temperament. Though nowhere near as doleful as his father, whom he closely resembled physically, he was not an enthusiast or prankster or extrovert like Walt either, and he had little of Walt's appeal. But Roy and Walt formed a very close relationship, so close that Walt seemed to regard him less as a brother than as a surrogate father, confiding in him as he could never have confided in Elias. They might argue, but when night fell, they would crawl into bed together and, sh and trade stories. Hmm. So that's quite... That's quite dear, I think. And that's yeah. probably something that allowed him to um, eventually to sort of do some of the things that he did. Um, yeah. And what's the, I think there's an anecdote where someone outraged asked Roy Disney, who do you think you are? God? And then Roy said, no, I'm God's brother. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. yeah. Roy Disney would be an interesting subject all his own. Uh, yeah. I'm sure. You know, these 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 men changed the changed the world. I mean, what did I Blower uh, today on Twitter? I, I posted a picture. I was at I was at Target Boutique Target shopping for some things, and there there it is, Minnie and Mickey Mouse in this yeah. uh, $150 Lego set, and I'm just like. It's the mouse's world. They just let yeah. us live in it, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, let me see here. So, yeah, so now we're in we're in Chicago, and we're getting into, we're sort of getting out of the early life section here, although there's, a, there's an important story because he does spend time in um, World War I. Uh, he forges the date of his birth on his birth certificate. And he joined the Red Cross in September of 19 and became an ambulance driver, underage. Hmm. They sent him to France, um, but he arrived late for the war. So, okay. yeah. just, missed, just missed it. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Um, he drew cartoons on the side of his ambulance for decoration uh, and had some of his work was published in the army newspaper. Um, so a little bit of a stint, but I think it's an interesting I think it's interesting that he would go so far as to forge uh, his own document, forge, lie about his age in order to get into the war. It's mm -hmm. very interesting, and I think it's worth noting because the Disney uh, studio would have a huge effect on World War II. Uh, they would become the major propaganda wing of the American government and actually probably a permanent part of the American state, as far as I'm concerned. Blower, I, I, I think you might have a few things to say about that when we get to it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Ah, okay. Awesome. Okay. okay. Well, so now let's, let's get into the career stuff. Um, all right. So, uh, Brad, where are you? Where are you with with Walt right now? Like, what are you? What are you? What's your vibe? Like most of these guys, I'm, I we we cover. I'm I'm cheering for him right now. You know, there's something charming about 
being a cartoonist and drawing cartoons on the side of your ambulance and, and whatnot. I'd be interested to see some of that early stuff. I doubt very much of it has survived, but yeah. 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 I'm, I, I, so far, so far, so good. I, the whole killing the owl thing. I'm like, uh, uh, I'm worried about his soul, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so beyond that, I'm sort of like, uh oh, there's got to be clouds looming because that's, uh, that's, that's, you yeah. shouldn't do that, I would say. Well, so he has, he has a partnership. We're talking about some very, very early business. Um, he's with, with fellow animators, he has some partnerships. It's May of 21. Now we're getting into the swinging 20s. Um, they created something called laughograms and these were mod uh, modernized fairy tales. Um, and I think they were, um, they were used for advertising. Um, so he's in business with some other people. He's doing these little, little things that would play in front of little movies. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, the company, uh, you know, wasn't staying solvent. So then this is important. He started production of. Alice in Wonderland, based on Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, which combined live action with animation. And if you can rack your brain and think back to all the sort of early and middle Disney, there are all these moments where it's clear he really wants to combine animation with live action. Maybe the most famous moment being when um, Mickey uh, pops into the screen of Fantasia and interacts with the conductor. Can you recall that? It's a very famous moment. Yeah, I don't remember uh, seeing that, but yeah. Yeah, it's okay. a very, so there, this is something I think it's really important to stop and, and mention that his interest in merging the world of the cartoon, of the animated uh, cartoon with the real world. Right, starts, drawing that idealized world into our world, right? Yes. Which makes it make sense that the build, build an amusement park is like an, another obvious means of trying to do that. Yeah. Yes. A lot of the way that like movies like Snow White were done were through rotoscoping where they would like animate over live action movements. And so, so yeah, it's sort of like a, his like ultimate dream is like a synthesis. I mean, it's basically a Toontown and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Right, right. right. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Okay. Yeah. That's, and that's the world he's created. So when we say we live in clown world or sort of cartoon world, we do. Right. <laughs> Quite literally. <laughs> um, so uh, the company went bankrupt. Uh, Allison, Alice could not save the company. Uh, and so what do you do when you go bankrupt uh, you're a young, you're a young guy. You're in, uh, I think at this point they're in Kansas city. Yeah. Kansas city, you go bankrupt. What do you do, Brad? You move to Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. Oh, go. Oh, okay. Yeah, All yeah. Right. We're going to Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> uh, la la land. You're going to yeah. go make your dreams. So he's already gone bankrupt. Um, that's the way to do a bankruptcy, do a bankruptcy in a, in a city, in a state you don't care about move. Yeah. Um, he, uh, I'm sure he cared about it, but, um, so he moved to Hollywood in July of uh, 23 at 21 years old. And, uh, New York was the center of the cartoon industry, but Walt wanted to live in LA because his brother Roy was there. Uh, and Roy was trying to become a live action film director. Roy had, um, tuberculosis at the time, uh, would obviously recover. Um, he could not, uh, sell Alice in Wonderland. 
they eventually got a contract for six Alice comedies and they formed um, the Disney Brothers Studios, which would later become the Walt Disney Company. Um, and so they convinced some of their um, uh, animator colleagues to move out and uh, they, they hired a couple of fellows and dragged them along from, from Kansas City out to Hollywood. That's ambitious. Uh, yeah. 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 A lot like Kubrick, right? We're, mm-hmm. we're in New York City. I'm in the Bronx. Hey, I know a dentist, you know, he's, uh, yeah. uh, we're going to go out, we're going to make a movie, right? Yeah. So in 1925, uh, he hired Lillian Bounds and they married. So he hired the woman who would later become his wife. wife. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, he gets married quite young as you, as you would in, at the time um, and fast. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and you know, I don't think it was a shotgun marriage. Um, I think they were probably just ready to get at it. Um, they were married in, uh, at her brother's house in Lewiston, Idaho. And, um, they, uh, <clears throat> they really struggled with, uh, a number through the, through the life, uh, a number of, um, miscarriages. Mm. Um, and, uh, eventually, the marriage produced Diane in 33 and then Sharon who they adopted in 36 and -hmm. they didn't hide the, um, the adoption. Um, all through this, they were careful to keep her out of the public eye, um, because of the Lindbergh business. Um, and he would, he would hide his his daughters away because by the time that was happening in the thirties, I'm getting out of order here a little bit, but, um, yeah. So I want (laughs) I have a note here. Um, about let's see (laughs) this is something because we're almost we're almost at the mouse uh there's a quote from walt disney where apparently he said uh (laughs) i love mickey mouse more than any woman i've ever known (laughs) (laughs) jeez man (laughs) um you know, so no, but is, wait, is this before it made him rich and famous? You know, <laughs> I think this was though. I it must have been probably after. I okay. would guess. I just All thought right. that well, was quite funny. Yeah, that is funny. There is going to be a certain um, amount of misogyny in in Disney um, as we move along. He he wouldn't hire female animators because they could get pregnant and leave a project at the last minute. Yeah, he yeah. he was he was definitely not ahead of. Um, of, of his time on that front. Um, yeah. So that's important. Uh, I'm reading here now from the Gabler book, Walt felt about women. No one could ever accuse him of infidelity or even of showing much interest in the opposite sex. Uh, yeah. Back when he was absorbed by his animations, he told Ward Kimball, I love Mickey Mouse more than any woman I've ever known. Um, and this is later sort of about him, his, um, obsession with Disneyland and how that was his hobby rather than having affairs. He had an affair with his business and his company in Disneyland. Although there were some rumors that he had a, um, an open affair, uh, with an actress, everybody knew, but these are sort of unfounded rumors. I couldn't get to the bottom of any of it. I would, it was mentioned in some, uh, sort of, uh, audio I found on YouTube, but then I couldn't corroborate it in the, um, the Gabler book. Uh, so maybe it's in there, but in any case, Flower, did you come across any of that? Any ideas of infidelity? Well, it is interesting and not to sort of add to the rumor and innuendo, but it is interesting how we, and maybe just because 
that was the time. And so what else would he be thinking about? But like, it is interesting that he specifies, I love Mickey Mouse more than any woman I've ever known. Uh, and, uh, and I'm not saying, and point. I don't think that he necess was necessarily uh, homosexual or anything, but I do think that he had more of a fascination with the male, specifically the boy form in a kind of like sort of I guess maybe because he wanted to I'm trying to be careful here I'm not trying I, I don't want to uh throw a lot make a lawsuit on you guys <laughs> this is worse than Scientology so you've got to really be careful <laughs> exactly yeah like I think it's because of his childhood and his sort of idealization of his simultaneous trauma of his childhood, but idealization. And so I think he identified more with boys. And that's why, and we'll get to it later, the Bobby Driscoll story, who he called like, who like he doted on and like was in a certain sense infatuated with this kid. Um, and then they had like a weird falling out. And so yeah. anyway, that's what I was thinking about, like the fact that he spe specifically said, I love Mickey Mouse more than any woman I've ever known. Ah, interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, so we're we're coming up to the the big career breakthrough. Um, but before we do, there was the issue of Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. Uh, are either of you familiar with uh, with Oswald and the drama around this? Uh, I don't he, know was, about he was drawn by uh what's his name mince i believe was it mince oh or... well there's another one maybe i'm not too oob iWorks. oob iWorks. yep who he was involved in the project and then later drew mickey mouse and then later uh iWorks and disney had like a huge follow falling out and like I sort of consider that moment the killing of the second owl where like after he sort of severed this, you know, like, cause the iWorks guy, he followed, he was one of those animators who followed Disney from Kansas city to LA. And he yeah. was like the primary guy who was responsible for the, the original look of like those older cartoons and so when they had their falling out, like in the late 30s, early 40s, that was kind of representative of Disney. Yeah, killing that second owl and like getting into the sort of more covert kind of freaky deep state stuff. Yeah, it starts here, right, with the creation of Mickey as an answer to the betrayal that this Ubi Iwerks fellow, he felt... Um, Disney felt uh, betrayed. So I have from the, um, from the Gabler book. He would in later years talk often of this episode as a betrayal, saying he had warned Mintz that those who had turned on Walt would also turn on him someday, which in time they did. He told it just like the plot of one of those stories where good will win and the villain will be defeated, recalled one of his longtime animators. He loved telling that story because it was so poetically just. He would say that you had to be careful whom you trusted, and he had learned that you had to control what you had or it would be taken from you, that he had seen how dupli duplicitous the business world could be. 
He said he had learned all these lessons and would never forget them. Uh, but as he and Lillian headed back to Los Angeles on the New York Central Cannonball with nothing but these lessons and the sunny bromides he was riding home to buck up Roy's spirits, the eternally optimistic Walt Disney who had ridden out crisis after crisis had one terrifying thought. He would have to begin all over again. So he, he had this deal with Universal in relation to um, Oswald the uh, Lucky Rabbit with the film producer Charles Mintz. Um, and uh, it all went to hell because the, the rights to Oswald, Oswald were essentially um, taken from Disney. Mm. So he was left um, with nothing. And out of this comes uh, this. So at the outset, Walt was furious. He was like a raging lion on the train coming home, Lillian would, would recall. All he could say over and over was that he'd never work for anyone again as long as he lived. He'd be his own boss. Hmm. Lillian admitted that she had another response, not rage, but fear. She was in a state of shock, scared to death, since they had no source of income now and no idea of what the future held uh, for them. Even before leaving New York, Walt said he had tried to devise a new character to replace Oswald without success. Um, so we have a little bit more about this. Um, Walt read uh, the story of the Lindbergh business to Lillian, but she said she couldn't focus because she was upset by the name Walt had bestowed upon his character, his new mouse character, Mortimer. Um, they were talking about the Lindbergh, uh, the solo flight across the Atlantic Ocean. Okay. Um, uh, so there's so um, he wrote an idea for a for a, a scenario for a cartoon called Plane Crazy about a mouse who would, inspired by Lindbergh, fly the Atlantic right to impress a lady mouse as you do. Yeah. And she said she really didn't like the name. The only thing that got through to me, she told an interviewer, was that horrible name, Mortimer. I was afraid I made quite a scene about it. Too sissy, she said. When she calmed down, Walt asked her what she thought of the name Mickey, an Irish name, an outsider's name. I said it sounded better than Mortimer, and that's how Mickey was born. Wow. Um, yeah. So now we've got uh, Mickey Mouse. So... All right, guys. Well, you know, when I say Mickey Mouse, when I say Steamboat Willie, what do you think? <laughs> what, what do you remember? What's, what, we're 1928, Steamboat Willie, the first uh, sound cartoon. Um, can you remember it? Do you, can, you, can you call it to your mind's eye, Blower, if you, if you had to? I remember, I always think of the famous shot of him, like, at the wheel. Yeah. And what's fascinating about Mickey is he really is like the cartoon Jacqueline. Yes. And so, mm -hmm. and so like, I think, yeah, Mickey Mouse is basically Disney being like, well, I can't be Chaplin, but I can invent a Chaplin. Right. Yeah. And I he think... has that kind of impish prank and, and keyword on impish. Cause like in those early cartoons, Nowadays, Mickey Mouse is a family man who's all dignified and stuff. But in a lot of those early cartoons, he is kind of a mischievous mouse and involved in kind of flim flam and just grandiose stunts and kind of like has like a weird like, you know, it's like the classic carny vaudeville energy that like obviously all this stuff comes from. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. There's a famous cartoon where he's in a trailer with all his friends with the duck and, you know, Donald Duck, my favorite Donald Duck uh, and, and the other ones. And so it's M- Mickey and he has his trailer and uh, he's preparing. He actually it's this beautiful, wonderful scene with this trailer and then the trailer folds up and then they're actually in this like industrial wasteland. Uh, you know, and there's all this, and and Mickey, especially early is quite awful to the other animals. Uh, yeah. Yeah. He's abusive. That bit you, you tweeted, was that from Steamboat Willie? The bit Mm -hmm. where he's playing the animal? Yeah, he's, he's playing the, the, the teats on the, the mama pig and he kicks one of the baby pigs. He's not a nice guy. No, no. I have to admit though, when I scroll was scrolling and came across that, that you would I laughed out loud. I thought it was it, there's something about it that just cracked me up. I don't know why. What here's one question I have. Why was it called Steamboat Willie, but it's Mickey Mouse? What is that about? Darn, I don't I don't know. I okay. have no idea. Because I've never actually seen it in full. I've seen snippets. I've seen the like Blower, you said I, I've seen him at the wheel tapping his foot and all that, but I don't actually know what the Cartier yeah, really I mean, is. let's let's see if we can find out. Yeah, it should be it should be uh, uh, Steamboat Mickey, but he's right, whistling a tune. This Maybe must be what it is. He whistles a tune, a tune "Steamboat Bill," so that it be okay. Steamboat Willie, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's a parody of the Buster Keaton movie. Oh, Steamboat is that right? Bill okay. Junior. I oh. see. Okay. Okay. Which, oh. Let's be honest. Steamboat Willie has a better ring to it than Steamboat Bill Jr. <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. <laughs> yeah. I was tempted to play a few minutes of this on the show, but I've decided not to do that. <laughs> yeah, you've been advised <laughs> I by don't legal need it. counsel. Yeah. I mean, this is very famously the reason copyright laws are the way they are is because of the mouse, is because of this, yeah. this mouse. Oh, yeah. um, but a few things about this. So, of course, Mickey was uh, voiced by Walt Disney from uh, 28 to 47 and then from 55 to 62. So that oh, okay. that is Disney uh, doing the voice of the mouse. Can anybody do it? No. I, does anybody dare do it? <laughs> it's not that kind of podcast. I can't do it. Um, Squeaky. But, yeah. Um, it is... Uh, a very, very important uh, breakthrough for, for Walt uh, artistically. It's also the first sound cartoon. And so um, how would it, how would it be presented? Do you know, would it be like before? A movie it'd be a short, something? it'd be a yeah. short um, that they would show in the, in the theater before okay. uh, another film, okay. presumably. Yeah. 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 Um, and uh, the, the way that they would do the soundtracks, the music for these, there, there's some very solid interviews with Walt online. If you want to go, you can hear him talk for an hour or even more, you know, uh, on YouTube. Um, he describes the process of making these and the tracks for these. Back in that day, this was brand new. It all had to be done with one track. The musicians all had to be hitting their notes. The the VO all had to be hitting their notes at the same time. And it was like music. So it's, you know, as things are going, it's you got the Foley artist. Yeah, everybody's there doing their whole thing, bopping along to to it. And if you, if one thing is out of place, it's like, you got to take it again and lay it down again. So um, that's quite, quite fun and interesting. Um, Blower, you have a note in here about 
uh, this Ubi Iwerks fellow. What's the story here? Uh, apparently, he he's the father of Mickey Mouse, but Disney uh, took him to the cleaners. Oh yeah, I well we touched on it a little bit earlier. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I just find it fascinating that he was. Well, I guess there are two fathers since Disney voiced the Mickey. But yeah, it was Iwerks who he was the one who put the pencil to paper and drew and embodied uh, Mickey Mouse. And then um, later on, they had like a partnership that was sort of, you know, that they had like the creative partnership that whereas Roy and Walt had like the sort of business and personal partnership. Um, and then later on, they had a big falling out I guess it wasn't like it wasn't that he was like screwed over in terms of like finances necessarily, although I'm sure there was some of that too. It was way more of like a personal and professional falling out where like at one point they were at some function, I guess, and like once there's like a little girl there and the girl went up to Disney because obviously he Disney was like the more uh, recognizable figure and it was like can you draw mickey mouse and then disney kind of brusquely handed the piece of paper to iwerks and was like here you draw it mm, um yeah and like i guess that's sort of what set off iwerks just kind of being seen as you know just one of disney's uh you know ultimately one of Disney's drawings in a way that he can just sort of like throw into any scenario and do with what he wanted. And, but yeah, he was the person who came up with the design of Mickey Mouse. Got it. Right. Yeah. And that's such a, a pivotal thing in terms of Disney and his persona and what he would ultimately become. Right. It's not America land or future land. It ended up being Disneyland right? This is, this is my land. There's a real vibe there. Um, so these are good times. Um, and I have, I have some reading here about the vibe and this is actually from, you know, iWorks is, is here. So this is after Mickey comes out. Um, it's the roaring twenties. It hasn't given way to the depression quite yet. And, um, the Mickey mouse club would actually start uh, in 1930, if you, um, if you go way back, uh, they would, they began the, the, uh, theater based Mickey mouse club in January 11th in ocean park, California with 60 theaters hosting clubs by March of 31. The club released its first issue of like apocalypse confidential of the official bulletin of the Mickey mouse club on April 15th tax day. Um, 1930. Uh, by 1932, really listen to this. By 1932, the club had one million members. Oh. And in 1933, the first UK club opened at Darlington's Arcade Cinema. Uh, they started to phase out the club in 35, but they would bring it back. That's a lot of kids buying those kids. funny hats. And this is where those crazy pictures come from, the crazy, creepy pictures. Where they're all sitting in the theater with the mask on? Yes. Yeah, okay. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you can begin to feel in this the whispers of an awareness that it's not just about selling cartoons, 
we are a club right. <laughs> and we're all going to come and sing along and be right. a part of it and wear the mask and wear the, wear the ears and all the rest of it. Um, but uh, getting back to the animators, these are good times. So um, iWorks uh, recalled, uh, this is working at the studio. We'd hate to go home at night. And we couldn't wait to get uh, to the office in the morning. We had lots of vitali vitality and we had to work it off. Um, though only a short time earlier, the atmosphere at the studio had been dismal. The success of the Mickeys lifted spirits. The animators could now play pranks on one another, pouring water on a chair as someone was about to sit in it or putting cheese on the light under a colleague's animation board or art gum eraser shavings in his pipe tobacco. But all the horseplay and jo uh, jokes, Iwerk said, never got in the way of the work. We all loved what we were doing and the enthusiasm got onto the screen. Um, indeed, when a reporter glowingly described the carefree atmosphere at Hyperion, the studio, Walt actually took offense, griping uh, that one would gather we are nothing but a happy-go-lucky bunch of fellows without, without any system or organization about us, and that all I do is sit on my uh, Fanny and pass out the checks to the fellows. Um, so there's Walt, <laughs> a little grumpy about the press. Walt uh, has an idea of how things are. And at that point, he's already kind of the master of the house. And, um, but the animators are having a good time. It's pretty um, cool for them. I mean, it's kind of a newish technology, a new medium. They're making a living at it. People like that's, that's exciting. If you're one of those guys. You know? Yeah. Well, we're, we're getting into the, the 30s um, here for Walt, and uh, things are not all rosy. You can maybe even catch it um, in that quote. Uh, he did have a, like a mental collapse in 31. Um, and uh, a lot of it had to do with the miscarriages, um, mm. you know, and uh, that this is not all, I mean, you can imagine what it had, you know, what this, um, what it must have been like to bring Mickey Mouse to life and to bring that into the world. Um, I'm reading a website here saying um, uh, he, let me see here. He was overworked. Um, there was a lot of tension and he, he eventually had a nervous uh, breakdown. He took some time off with his wife and it was um, when he came back, that's when he, he conceived of the idea of developing a full length animated feature, which is of course what we know uh, as uh, Snow White and the Seven um, Dwarfs. We're, we're gonna pause here to talk about uh, Walt and uh, some politics here because in the 30s, um, Walt flirted with a, a Nazi organization. Um, <laughs> and this is probably where you get the, uh, the business of him being an anti-Semite. Brad. Yeah, um, yeah. So he was uh, sympathetic and went to some of the meetings of, uh, let's see, uh, uh, one moment here. I'm reading from one site. Yeah, go ahead. This is like the mid 30s. Mid 30s, yeah. yeah. So I'm just going to gonna quote here. Uh, <laughs> this is pretty intense. So we'll read this. The rumors. Uh, that Walt was a Nazi abound in the age of the internet. We've got rumors he was a Nazi. We have rumors, rumors he was a Spanish, uh, the, you know, the child of a Sp of Spanish lord and a lowborn. We have the rumor that he was cryogenically frozen. Yeah. And, yep, we've got yeah. these larger than life. Um, there were characteristics of Nazism um, in his politics. Uh, 
He was a Nazi sympathizer, maybe. So famed Disney animator Art Babbitt, who worked closely with Disney, once claimed, um, as quoted in a book, uh, in the immediate years before we entered World War II, there was a small but fiercely loyal following of the Nazi par party. They were, there were open meetings, anybody could attend, and I wanted to see what was going on myself. On more than one uh, occasion, I observed Walt Disney and Gunther Lessing, his lawyer there, along with a lot of prominent Nazi-affiliated uh, Hollywood personalities. Disney was going to these meetings all the time. So Disney went to some meetings of the German-American Bund. Yeah. yeah, the Bund, like you okay. do. Yeah, okay. I mean, I think we have to remember too, not, not apologizing for this, just a little interlude here, but um, I, Hitler was a, 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 at that time, uh, he was on the cover of Life magazine at one point. He, yeah, we're not talking you know, the yeah. height of World War II. I yeah. mean, I, I don't know what they were talking about or whatever, but yeah, you yeah. got to place these things in their time. Nobody will ever mistake Walt Disney as a man of the left. Yeah. Yeah, no. <laughs> right. right. Fair, fair to say, Blauer? I think, I mean, a part of it is I think his fascination with nazism and i was thinking about it when you were saying that like the mickey mouse club reached a million members i was like well that just sounds kind of like the hitler youth in a way <laughs> and that like yeah i think he saw hitler and the nazis kind of doing the political version of what he was doing in entertainment and that like it's like, well, obviously, because Hitler was a failed artist. And so he's, it's sort of like megalo, it's like megalomaniacs see each other and whether they agree politically or not, although I kind of do, you know, I think the evidence shows that Disney at least had some political sympathies. I think it's more that, well, we're operating at the same level as opposed to all these other people. Wow. Operating. Right. Yeah. That's probably, that's a, that's very insightful. Right. I see what you're doing over there, Hitler. Uh, let me raise you a Mickey Mouse club. Uh, it's like, my, it's about, yeah. it's less about politics or entertainment and more about like reshaping reality is yeah. what they're going for. And, and, and both are doing it in the form of a, of a callback, right. Of a, of a trying to, to either return or, or bring back, bring forward a sort of idealized past, even though those pasts exactly. are a little Exactly, and different. it's like, what are all of those, what are like, you know, up into, I think it's Sleeping Beauty is the last Disney cartoon that's like based on a European fairy tale. And like, what are all of those based on and based in is like that sort of Germanic Alpine right. region of Europe. And so there is this kind of Teutonic sensibility to Disney in general. I mean, that Disney castle is based on the castle of that like mad Bavarian prince or whatever. Is it oh, New, uh, New, New Schwanstein? I think is that what it is? Yeah, New, New Schwanstein or Schweinsveld yeah. or something, something <laughs> like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so it's been, it's like well baked in the cake, this kind of you know, maybe he's not a Nazi sympathizer necessarily, but he is a sympathizer of this kind of militant Bavarianism or something. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. 
All right. Okay. And that is why we had uh, invited Blower on for the Disney episode. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Playing the hits. So very interesting. And uh, we're going to, we're going to move forward a little bit here. Uh, And we're going to move through time. So they would do the first color cartoon, Flowers and Trees. Uh, Have you seen Flowers and Trees, fellas? Can you remember that? Um, It's the trees come to life. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I posted some stills from that actually mm-hmm. about a week ago. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's a wild one too. That's very sort of like a European pagan kind of. I mean, I yeah. Guess all of well, and there like, is, there's a real, I, yeah, there's a real kind of quirky paganism underpinning a lot of the Disney business, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so Flowers and Trees, they win an Oscar for Flowers and Trees. Uh, he would win 22 Oscars in his life. Whoa. So no slouch. Yeah. Uh, he was nominated 59 times. Uh, so the real deal. Um, mm. And let's see. So his daughter's born, Diane. They do Three Little Pigs in 33. People tend to see Three Little Pigs through the lens of the Depression. Uh, that's happening. So these things are being put into sort of cultural context. Then we get uh, the the banger, the big one, uh, Snow White, which um, was a very very big deal when that came out. Uh, and it holds up. I mean, it's for what it's, it is. Honest, it don't take really it does. Yeah, yeah. When's the last time you watched that? I mean, it's been a long, long time. But yeah. 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 What do you, it, looks what do you, it looks good. It, yeah. And you have to think live action films didn't have color for another, what, 15, 20 years. Uh, and to sit in a theater and watch an hour and a half of a color film must have been like crazy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. It, it blew. It must have blown their minds. I really I really believe that it it must have blown their minds. Uh, yeah, it's like true enchantment or, you know, spellbinding. Like it really is the uh, apotheosis of cinema as like a kind of magical form. And what's fascinating to me about, I feel like I've been, I've been starting that a lot, this uh, podcast. What's fascinating to me, it's all fascinating. <laughs> You're crushing it. You're it killing the game. Yeah, it what's is. fascinating to me is... With an animated movie, when you watch that, and I actually watched, you know, I, I did my homework and I watched Snow White this past weekend. Nice. Um, rewatched it, rather, if you've seen it a billion times in the past. But you realize just how, with an anim- animated movie, every single thing in the frame is deliberately there. Like, yeah. unless you're a perfectionist like Stanley Kubrick, listen to the Art of uh, Art of Darkness episode on Stanley Kubrick. But, like, with live action, most of this, a lot of the stuff that happens in a frame in a live action movie is just kind of there, whether by environment or whatever, um, unless it is truly a controlled set, like with Kubrick. Um, but with an animated movie, it's like nothing is just accidentally in a frame. Yeah. Everything is meticulously drawn and arranged there. And that's what I find so incredible about these movies. They really are worth uh, revisiting. Uh, the, the, the early Disney is 
classic for a reason. They're they're incredible. Uh, oh, and the backgrounds are like fine art almost. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes, they really are. Yeah, yeah, they're gorgeous. Uh, same with like the sorry, this is a tangent, but like same with like the uh, Looney Tunes backgrounds, like with like the matte paintings by like. I think it's like Chuck Jones or something like that. Like they like straight up are like, uh, not for who it's, who's the desert lady painter, Virginia. Oh, Georgia, oh, Georgia, Georgia O'Keefe. Georgia yeah. O'Keefe. Yeah. Like yeah. they're like straight up like Georgia O'Keefe style, like stark desert landscapes. It's, yeah. it's incredible. Yeah. 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 So I want to, um, arrive at a, at a tragic moment in his life. But before I do, I need to lay the table here um, and really ex explain where they were. So I'm going to be reading from a few paragraphs here from, from the uh, Gabler book. Donald Duck, who I is my favorite. Uh, Donald Duck was not the only character at the studio to achieve stardom in the mid thirties. Awards and recognition had tumbled in for Walt. The Art Institute of Chicago exhibited 100 Disney drawings which the Institute's director said constitute art in nearly every sense. I mean, it just goes on, right? The Writers Club of LA, you know, they gave him, you know, gold medals, blah, blah, blah. Um, he was given like, let's see here. Uh, there was a, there was a, the Writers Club of LA uh, had a dinner with Will Rogers and Chaplin in attendance. All right. So we're coming from the farm in Missouri. We're, or, or, or uh, the little, um, I'm going to dress up as Chaplin. Now Chaplin's in the audience when I'm getting an award. It's kind of mind blowing. Um, they, they were given, uh, he was given a gold medal. The Art Workers Guild of England, whose ranks included George Bernard Shaw, gave him a membership. Uh, the first for a filmmaker. We're, so we're talking A-list through the roof, just completely over the top. Everybody would visit him. Um, I'm just going to read some of the names of the famous visitors who came to tour the studio. Douglas Fairbanks, Mary Pickford, H.G. Wells, uh, Chaplin, Madeline Carroll, Ernst Lubitsch, Robert Benchley, Alexander Wolcott, uh, Eisenstein, Sergei, Sergei Eisenstein, um, who wrote that he was sometimes frightened watching Disney films, frightened because of some absolute perfection in what he does, and because Disney seemed to know all the most secret strands of human thought, images, ideas, feelings. Frank Lloyd Wright, Aldous Huxley, Igor Stravinsky, uh, quoting uh, from Dick Humer, everybody in the world beat a path to Walt's door. I mean, unreal. Uh, and how old, wait, so this was what year, this is after Snow This White is in the out. 30s, so he's, he's younger than, he's in, he's in his early 30s. Wow. Late, wow. this is a rock star. Yeah. He's a rock star. Wow. wow. Kind of amazing. Um, it is, yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to, you know, talk about that level of fame achieved that quickly. Uh, kind of amazing. Well, now something kind of awful happened. We're getting up toward World War II. Um, but there was a, a tragedy in relation to his mother and, uh, and his father. Let me read what happened here. Um, so, of course, they were from poverty, near poverty. Um, they made a lot of success. Walt and Roy, they're out in Hollywood. They've made good. And they bought their parents a new home in North Hollywood, not far from the studios. 
the elder Disney's had only uh, been there a few months when Flora started to complain of headaches and said she felt constantly ill. Uh, they suspected the furnace, so Walt sent over a handyman from his studio, hey mom, I got my guy, uh, to look into the matter. Whatever the handyman did, it wasn't enough. One November morning, the housekeeper felt woozy and went to get the Disney's out of the house. Walt's father, Elias, had collapsed in the hallway. Flora had fallen in the bathroom on the bathroom floor. They were able to revive Elias, but it was too late for Flora. She passed away from asphyxiation on November 26th of 1938 at the age of 70. And this Boy, house that he bought them, like, yes. oh, that's rough. Roy had an inspection done on the faulty furnace. Included in the write-up were these particularly awful words. Installation of the furnace showed either a complete lack of knowledge of the requirements of the furnace or a flagrant disregard of these conditions if they were known. And uh, Walt felt terribly guilty. He refused to talk about the matter for the rest of his life to anyone. Even many years later, when his daughter asked where her grandparents were buried, he wouldn't discuss it. Well, so that's a pretty real life tragedy when you think about that. Uh, That's dark. Does not get any darker. Well, so we have Walt, famous Roy, his right hand man. They're doing, you know, he's doing the books. He's the accountant. We're focused on animation. That's what we're doing. 1940 comes around. And in one year, they release Pinocchio and they release Fantasia. Uh, what do you remember about Pinocchio, Brad? Oh, Pinocchio is great. Pinocchio is fantastic. <laughs> Pinocchio, I did watch in the last few years, and Pinocchio holds up. Like, it's, it's, uh, it's hilarious and charming and deeply symbolic and uh, bizarre. Like, it's, it's, it's borderline surrealism in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, it's just, it's just fantastic. Yeah. Flower, what what's your take on Pinocchio? My main memory of Pinocchio is the whale. And I always loved uh. the whale because as a child, and I guess now too, I'm obsessed with the movie Jaws. And mm. so like I love any sort of gigantic sea behemoth. And so I was always struck by the whale in Pinocchio. And don't they like light a fire inside it and it starts like like spewing like smoke or whatever? So yeah, yeah, extra resonant. Yeah. Well, Jaws, man. I mean, don't get me started on Jaws. Uh, that's Kevin, sure. that's Kevin's favorite movie. Oh, for, for sure. sure. I mean, yeah. you and I we could geek out. I went on Forest of Symbols podcast and he he begins the podcast with the Jaws theme. <laughs> Which <laughs> tickled I actually, me. I started that the other yeah. night and I oh, heard good. that and I was like. Yeah. Uh, tickled me pink. I was so happy. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, that maybe was, that was, that was yeah. my Mickey Mouse impression there. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, Jordan Jordan Peterson has made a bunch of Patreon money off of his love of Pinocchio, I believe. Oh, is that right? Yeah. yeah. So maybe we can dip into the some Pinocchio money. Just when you thought it was safe to get back in the water, <laughs> that was pre- that was pretty good. That was pretty good. I know I had that in me. We all have the mouse. Oh no! Oh no! The MK Ultra Trigger. Oh no! Mr. Kautzman. Right. Wake up with a yeah. You do that, and then you pass out, and you wake up with a gun in your hand for some reason. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. 
Uh, no, Your Honor, I have no recollection of the night of, uh, yeah. Um, well, so we're, uh, I want to talk a little bit about what he wanted to do with um, Fantasia. And uh, then we'll talk a bit about Fantasia. So I didn't realize Fantasia, sorry, I didn't realize Fantasia was so early in, in the films. Like It that's feels a, later, doesn't it? It does. It's, it's great. It's, it's a bold choice, really. Yeah. And yeah. it was initially called the concert feature. So he was talking about it. He said, we're not making an ordinary cartoon. And I feel that we've got the wrong slant on this stuff. I don't believe in this gag stuff. So he wants to move away from the gags. He wants to move away from the vaudeville business that of the very early stuff. So he's looking to do something very uh, higher than the sentimental fantasy. Um, he, uh, he would never have called himself an artist. He was too skeptical of culture and too plain spoken for that. But he did want to make art, if only because that was the natural evolution for him. He thought the concert feature, he thought Fantasia was going to certifiably be art. Uh, quoting, they're worried about the highbrow angle. He groused at a story meeting after having lunch with uh, RKO, the distributor. The only thing I'm worried about is that it might be a little too lowbrow. If you put dopey it, uh, in it, they would say swell. So he wants to make something that's just completely um, intense. So he's saying, there are things in that music, talking about the, the box Toccata and Fugue in D minor, there are things in that music that the general public will not understand until they see the things on the screen representing that music. Uh, then they will feel the depth of the, of the music. Our object is to reach the very people who have walked out on this Toccata and Fugue because they didn't understand it. I am one of those people. But when I understand it, I like it. So he has a very big mission. Uh, and if you recall Fantasia, there, there are those whole sequences where the music is mapped to the visuals and you have this synesthetic representation. Uh, can you well, remember it's that? Funny that he, it's funny that he frames it as a rejection of the, his earlier sort of gag short sensibility when it is closer in spirit to that as opposed to like these narrative sentimental fantasies because like what are what are those original like gag shorts called they're called silly symphonies mm -hmm. and so there yeah. is what it is is that it's sort of it's a synthesis of uh image and especially in this case uh drawing and sound and it's i don't know i'm sort of i'm trying to reach for what i'm trying to say here but it is much more in like the original like old sense of cinema as a kind of um short form like artistic style that like lets you commune i guess to use the grandiose word for it commune rather than watch commune with this kind of perennial artistic tradition of that if that makes any sense i'm thinking mainly of and sorry i'm rambling here no no i'm thinking mainly of like i've been obsessed especially this halloween season 
obsessed with like the different like silent and pre-code horror Facebook groups I'm in. And like they post this stuff that's like basically like pinhole like peep shows, basically like non-pornographic, but they're still peep shows like in the old Nickelodeon style from like the 1900s that are like glimpse into, you know, the inferno of Dante's hell. And Yeah. it's like this grandiose phantasmagoria. And I feel like Fantasia is a kind of return of to that sensibility of cinema, I guess. Absolutely. If that makes Yeah, sense. I can see that. And by the end of Fantasia, right, it has the Walpurgisnacht is the final uh, bit of Fantasia. Is Yeah. that what plays during the what is it, the Sorcerer's Apprentice bit? The No, no, the the Sorcerer's Apprentice, I don't know all the music. We could Yeah, look it up. that's fair. Um, Yeah. but the no, the the Walpurgisnacht is the um the night when the dead rise from the grave. Oh, okay. Uh, and Yeah. it's it 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 is very interesting how it's introduced because it's I I suspect that like hardcore Christians probably were a little sus of Disney from from day one. Uh be interesting to look into yeah I guarantee it because when you look at Night on Bald Mountain is what it is. Um, it, it, it's literally Satan yeah uh, is is uh, playing with these the, the souls of the dead have risen from the grave. Uh, and then it's followed by Ave Maria, but it's a very kind of neutral, again, kind of a pagan look of like at the dawn and the sunrise. Yeah, you have uh, it goes. The segments are Takata and Fugue in D minor, Nutcracker Suite, Sorcerer's Apprentice, uh, Rite of Spring, <laughs> which is just absolutely wild. And the Rite of Spring Yeah. is the one where they, the conductor introduces it as if it's a representation of human history, the like deep history. So you have a generation of people who, for whom I suspect this is probably the largest or one of the largest representations of the concept of like dinosaurs to begin Mm. in a widespread way. It must have blown Yeah. minds, but it also shaped the, the world and how we look and see it, see the world. Uh, Well, it's like also like a continuation of like older traditions of like oral storytelling of like cosmology and like how, you know, the world came to be like, it's basically, it's like a 20th century redux of that, like, almost like tribal primeval cosmology. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Indeed. Well, so all is not well at uh, Disney Studios around this. He's running a very tight ship. And uh, are you one or both of you familiar with his uh, pro labor problems? <laughs> you know anything about this? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, well, let's learn about it. Uh, so we're getting into the early uh, 40s here. Uh, something had changed, something ineffable but important that undermined the sense of happiness and contentment. After the initial flush of appreciation, some employees began to feel as if the studio were too good, too perfect. The collegiate atmosphere became almost oppressive, one employee complained. Another recalled, everything looked so nice, I almost felt like wearing a tie. 
Before the studio moved to Burbank, Joe Rosenberg, the banker, had warned Walt vaguely that the new plant would be so nice you will cause discontent. He was right. Uh, some charged it to a new sense of impersonality now that the studio was bigger and more routinized. So now Disney's having growing pains and the, the artists, the animators, uh, beginning to realize how much power they have and they're being forced into Walt's idea of sort of the sterile corporate world uh, that he that he aspires to create and which we associate with Disney. Disney's greatest creation finally is the corporation as we understand it. The modern multimedia, um, you know, multinational uh, corporation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and in that sense, he's always had a, there's always been a pairing in my mind with him and Henry Ford that I never quite yeah. understood. Like they're, they're kind of the same guy to me somehow. And I never quite understood it, but you're kind of, you're kind of hitting that a little bit. Yeah. Disney was the imagination factory. Right. The, the right. image factory. Right. Yeah. Well, so his, his animators went on strike. So it is 1941. May 28th, strike 6 a.m. today, read the first entry in his desk diary. Uh, apparently the strike actually began the next day. It was May 28th, 29th. Um, the atmosphere that morning was both festive and festering. Uh, his enemy had the, uh, Sorrell had the picketers crowding the gate while loudspeakers blasted music and messages at the employees driving through. Uh, Somebody wrote, cars stopped all the way along Buena Vista Street, which fronted the studio. The guys were pouring their individual speeches into the ears of uh, those on the fence. It was apparently a very, very big strike. Um, as Walt himself entered the gates that morning, easing his way through the throng in his Packard and genially waving to the strikers, Babbitt grabbed a megaphone from actor John Garfield, who was on the picket line to support the strike and yelled, Walt Disney, you should be ashamed of yourself. Then as Babbitt told it, he turned to the crowd and shouted, there he is, the man who believes in brotherhood for everybody but himself. When the crowd cheered, Walt bolted from the car and took off after Babbitt until he was restrained. <laughs> oh my gosh. Walt was much more sanguine behind the studio's gates. Um, yeah. Well, so this was this was quite an, an intense moment for uh, for Walt. He's running uh, what people are, you know, they're sort of upset about the way that he's running the business. Well, and this is part of it. This is part of a more general sort of labor unrest too. I, I mean, mm -hmm. I'm not a historian of that by any means, but yeah, I think this was, uh, uh, you know, a a, ba a battle and a larger war of of labor generally going on yeah. at the time. Right. I mean, and I'm reading from a Newsweek article here now. He pulled down a weekly salary of <laughs> weekly. He was making uh, $32,000 a week and he was contemptuous of his morning. <laughs> well, he was $32,000 a week in today's money. Oh, that's oh, still, so still that's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot of money. Yeah, there, there's yeah, you don't want for anything, right? And you own the company. So not only are you drawing a huge salary, you own the company. Yeah. Um, and he was contemptuous. Uh, the he had the he uh, he used a bunch of harsh language. 
He berated them. He would blame them for not bettering themselves. So now we have that figure of the guy who's like, well, pull yourself up through your bootstraps. I did it too. And not realizing that not everybody's going to be Walt Disney. Yeah. Um, so there was a strike. There was physical violence. Disney removed himself to South America, took a 10-week vacation. This gets in, I think, to some of the government business. Uh, they yeah. were, yeah, let's, let, we'll, we'll talk about it. Um, he left the problems at the studio to uh, Roy. His brother settled, he gave the workers whatever they wanted. Now, Disney was disillusioned, distrustful of the environment. He developed a private file on all those who had been, been unfriendly toward him. And uh, he imagined communists, and probably there were some communists uh, lurking mm -hmm. behind the scenes. Um, he was furious, but in 47, I'm jumping around because we're gonna jump back to the wartime, which is super important, but he appeared as a friendly witness before the Un-American Activities Committee and uh, he named Sorrell a communist. So he wow. was on that side of the sure. aisle. Uh, now, Blauer, let's talk about Disney in World War II and South America and the propaganda films and all the rest of it. Let's go. Well, what I feel like this is sort of the, and maybe to continue the analogy, maybe this isn't the killing of a third owl or it's like a resurrection of some kind of evil owl demon or something like that <laughs> yeah because this is sort of the hinge point where disney really gloms on to whatever we want to call the system or state or whatever and becomes this huge thing multinational uh mickey mouse octopus that we know and are forced to love <laughs> um <laughs> yeah because you know in the face of these strikes and i think he was having they were having like another uh bankruptcy scare i think i read that like disney not the company but personally was like always like having like financial problems or like financial like fears and so he was just like all he felt like he was always on the verge of just like losing everything. And that goes back to also the fear of dying at 35. So he was always in the sense of real or perceived precarity. And he would always reach for any life vest or any sort of rescuing arm, even if that arm belonged to Uncle Sam. And so yeah, he begins doing propaganda films for United States government for World War II. And it's crazy the degree to which uh, Disney Studios did this because, you know, other, you know, other studios, like they did like, you know, war movies or and, uh, sort of like, docu like sort of docu propaganda movies like john ford did some like you know pacific theater kind of documentary flicks so like it was obviously like a full-scale thing in hollywood but like disney studios completely halted any commercial filmmaking i think maybe dumbo was like their last one in 1941 which is my personal favorite disney film um and just devoted themselves full time to pushing the war effort. 
And I feel like this is sort of when he really got, you know, in the words of uh, James Elroy, my favorite author, jungled up with certain like intelligence agencies and definitely confirmed um, he was like an informant for the FBI when with Hoover and for the OSS, which later became CIA, which will figure later into the establishment of Disney World. So this is really the, this is the birth of Disney as not just an artist or commercial entity, but as like a parapolitical operation. Yeah. Right. And so, so you, yeah. So it's not just like, well, everybody's kind of doing their duty and our duty is to make a couple of little movies to help. It's like full on, like, yeah, yeah basically a branch of the, a branch of the government. That's eh, yeah. This is, this is when, you know, if you want to get um, moralistic or religious about it, this is more or less when he sold his soul right um or what soul he had left if you want to go that way um sold his soul and basically turned disney into the psychological warfare branch of the deep state ah interesting puff in your joint now yeah (laughs) yeah that's right warriors yeah (laughs) and we're gonna go even deeper uh, into this uh, area of inquiry, this line of inquiry on the After Dark episode uh, for Patreon subscribers after the episode proper, artofdarkpod.com, patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. I'm excited. This stuff really gets me jazzed up and the whole strange mind control, MK Ultra, Alice in Wonderland, all of these things kind of weaving together uh, this idea of uh, mass mind control and how do you manipulate entire uh, portions of the population, entire populations to achieve your political end. So in World War II, they talk, so Newsweek has this little article, oh, he went to South America for, for 10 weeks, right? Ah, yeah, one of the most powerful people in the world just went to South America. Well, no, there was a lot more to this. They wanted him um, to a big part of the World War II propaganda effort was to uh, enhance ties in this hemisphere uh, in the hopes that South America would not side with the Axis during the war. Um, and so Disney produced some films during that period that were to sort of encourage comedy between uh, North America and Central and, and South America. These trips were not just like, he wasn't just lying on a beach. He was meeting with very, very heavy people. Um, fair to say, Blauer? Huh? Uh, fair to say? Is that is that in line with what you uh, uh, with what you've learned? Absolutely, yeah. And I mean, South America is its whole other ball of wax in terms of like CIA and OSS stuff. So, like going on like a vacation to South America for ten weeks. And then, like, he made that, like, what is that one? Oh, it's a, a three caballero, the caballeros. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, like, totally in line with the ongoing ops in Latin America. Yes. Yeah, so I'm going to read a few paragraphs about this from the book. Uh, the irony for Walt Disney was that for all the shortcuts and economizing it had imposed, the war was the one thing that was saving him, saving his business. 
Had he, had he been dependent on his features and shorts, the studio almost certainly would have been driven into bankruptcy and forced to close. It wasn't that Walt was making much on the government work. Um, he was sort of charging them uh, cost. The studio, partly out of patriotism and partly out of naivete, was still asking the government only for cost. Um, and that enraged his money man, right? So Walt, it's so interesting, right? You've got this fellow who forged a document in order to get into World War I. Now he's a big man and he's very, very eager to, to do the government's bidding almost uh, to his own detriment. A uh, very interesting sort of case study here. Um, let's see here. Uh, there was one more irony. Though he had been failing as a commercial filmmaker, by the end of 1942, Disney had become the leader of government movie production. Quoting him, this past year has been not only one of the most exciting, he wrote his uncle, uh, but one of the most exhausting I have ever experienced. Since last January, when we made the income tax picture for the Treasury Department, we have plunged into a type of work I never expected to touch. The plunge included nearly 300,000 feet of film produced that year, up from a pre-war total of 30,000, which was why the shortcuts were so necessary. Over 75% of the studio's output yeah, was now <laughs> targeted for the government. With the training films demonstrating the educational potential of motion pictures, Walt was also increasingly recognized as, in right. Fortune's words, one of the great teachers of all time. But even as Walt put a gloss on this renown and called it a great opportunity to show what our medium can do, it was a far, far cry from yeah, the things he had right. always wanted the medium to do. At times, it seemed we had yeah. slipped over a parallel but slightly yeah. altered universe, was how studio executive Harry Tittle put it, where the usual rules were changed or no longer applied. Yeah. Tittle was right. They had changed. Reality reshaping. Yes. Yeah, reality being like shifting and moving <laughs> around them in the wake of this chthonic force of, of World War II. Uh, well, so... There's a note here from you, Blauer, about Bobby Driscoll, uh, who is one of the stars who was caught in the wreckage of, oh, no. of Disney and his life. Can we talk a little bit about him? Yeah, he was the, let's see. He was, well, I guess this is a little bit earlier, but we can do this now just sort of as a case study. He was the animation model and voice of Peter Pan, which oh. is very, oh, very uh, resonant for uh, certain uh, mind control things. And then obviously wow. he was in live, their live action movies like Song of the South and Treasure Island. And, and, and that's was, the model for Peter Pan. Disney say about like, him. That's, yeah. um, basically... He Disney right. was uh, Oof. sorry. Walt often referred to Driscoll with great affection as the living embodiment of his own youth. So there's that idealization of his youth, wow. um, and that he was his favorite live action child star. And then in a uh, kind of mm -hmm. uh, seems like a breakup scenario. Uh, following the completion of Peter Pan during a project meeting, Disney was like, you know what? 
I don't really see Driscoll as a likable protagonist yeah, anymore, but rather as a young bully, which sounds like a jilted kind of person. Like, you know, you're a young bully. You're not likable anymore. Um, what a thing to hear from one of the most powerful men in the world. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And like when you're like, I yeah, mean, it's a pattern repeated over and over. Yeah, they kind of get disposed been, of uh, and they get used up and disposed like, of. Uh, and, uh, 12 or something. Oh, God. Yeah. Or not 12. He would have been like 15 or 16, but still okay. bad. Yeah, that's awful. And, Maybe even worse. Yeah. Yeah. Because like at that point, you're arguably even more impressionable when you're a teenager than when you're like in pre adolescent. Um, but yeah. And so then. He sort of escaped the uh, Mickey Mouse castle or was ousted from the Missy- Mickey Mouse castle. Neuschwanstein, he- yeah. <laughs> exactly. And he, you know, he did his general guest spots and he kind of got involved in the avant-garde scene. And um, he was sentenced to prison for drug use. Uh-huh. And then with all of his money gone, his body was discovered on March 30th, 1968 yeah. in an abandoned tenement in the East Village, like in basically just a cot in some abandoned building. And like, I think he was like surrounded by, yeah, he was surrounded by two empty beer bottles and religious pamphlets. And uh, yeah, he died of his drug use that had affected his heart. And he, yeah. His unclaimed body yeah. was buried in an unmarked pauper's grave in New York City's Potter's Field. Yeah, that yeah. was that was yeah. Disney's favorite boy. That was Disney's <laughs> embodiment of his childhood, you know, buried in a pauper's grave. Another dead owl. Yes. Yeah, that's that's the dead owl right there. Boy, well, I mean, you see that model today. Like, you have like all these former Disney stars and former Mickey Mouse Club stars who they have this squeaky clean image and then instantly turn on a dime and become kind of uh, lewd, lavicious pop stars. Britney. And then, you know, the, the better of them, they, you know, the lucky ones, they kind of grow out of that and become, you know, mature artists of a certain sort. But the other ones, they just uh, wither away or just sort of languish. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> yes. Well, so Disney comes out of the war and now having turned the studio into kind of like a live action training operation, in addition to the cartoon propaganda, they turn to live action. And he releases, they release something called Seal Island, which is a, one of the first environmental films. Uh, and this sentiment, uh, we skipped over Bambi. Bambi was a big deal when it came out. I believe it came out in 42, uh, right kind of in the thick of the war. That was a very big deal. And of course, Bambi has this environmental, uh, environmentalist kind of a, a vibe to it, right? The hunters are sort of bad. 
in, in that film. And it turned a generation of people off of, of the idea of like, oh my God, you can't kill, you're not going to go out and kill Bambi's mom, are you? Right. And of course you have the dead mother there uh, and all of it. Bambi is a very strange movie. If you watch it, the plot is odd and, and there's sort of this multiple ex machina type situations where just Bambi's dad, you know, Bambi's baby daddy, like shows up and just sort of saves the day. It's not entirely even clear how Bambi's character develops. It's just Bambi. Uh, does that ring true? I don't know how long it's been since you've seen it, um, Blower. Bambi's uh, a weird, yeah. It's been a while since I've seen it. Um, although it is funny because still to this day, when I'm talking to my mom, shout out to my mom. Uh, um, Blower mom. Like if I, yeah, exactly. Blower mom. Um, you know, like if I, you know, may go back to my place after hanging out with her or whatever, like I will say <laughs> made it mother, you know, after the thing that, after Bambi saying that. So, I, and I guess that's kind of yeah. odd because obviously <laughs> the mother doesn't make it, but... Yeah, oh, we found we drilled right into your trigger. We found it. Yeah, it's there. It's there. No, it's an interesting one. I, I rewatched it, and it's it's not my favorite. Uh, it's beautiful. Uh, it's just it's not it's not my favorite. Uh, but uh, so we have Seal Island. He wins an Oscar for Seal Island. Uh, I've never even heard of Seal Seal Island. Seal Island. Uh, it's a. It's a, a. You know, we can look it up on the Wikipedia right oh, now. Oh no, uh, we don't have to spend. No, time but on I mean, you know, it's it's interesting that there's so much that like yeah. big stuff like that can fall through the cracks. Yeah, it's a documentary film, and it's it began their true life adventures uh, nature documentary. Won won an Oscar okay. for best short subject two reels. So this would be, you'd go into the theater on a hot day. It, the, the theater would be the only place to have air conditioning. You'd go in and they'd show these before the feature and you'd spend four hours in the, in the cinema, right? Uh, yeah, so uh, moving along here, Cinderella, right? Yeah, One of my personal yeah. favorites, the story of Robin Hood, amazing. You, you noticed, mm. oh, it's so good. Yeah, Robin Hood's uh, just, great. Just love it. Me and my mutuals, Robin Hood. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you know, that's the first, well, I don't know, Peter Pan may have came come before it. That was the first that was uh, a little bit more of a masculine storyline, really. Right? I mean, of the ones you've mentioned, of the animated mm. features. You've got Sleeping Beauty, or sorry, Snow White. You've got Bambi. You've got... Uh, what else is what else is Cinderella? In there? Um, but that's the first one that Cinderella. That's the first one that feels like a rock rollicking masculine. Adventure yeah, that's story a good point. It's also bit. a love story as well. Uh, all of these things are yeah. so musical yeah. as well. And to my mind, we're this is the this is the golden age. This is it does not get better than this. That early stuff is fantastic too, but this stuff is just great. Uh, Robin Hood. Then in '53, you got Peter Pan. And you have an interesting thing that's happening here where there's clearly a turn toward the UK. I think they realized that they had an international audience. So Peter Pan is set in London, right? Um, or begins in London. Um, later you would have Dalmatians in London. Um, it feels like the world opens up a little bit more, right? You have um, 
Robin Hood, very English story. I like how the accents in Robin Hood are just so totally all over the place. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense, but you don't, but it also doesn't make any sense that a bear is hanging out with a fox. <laughs> well, I think it's also right, right. important to note that like at this time period, that like after the drama of the animator strike and the sort of, you know, obviously coasting along alive and like along alive and the sort of deep straight stuff with uh world war ii propaganda stuff by this point disney has kind of retreated from like the sort of animation side in terms of you know personally disney and that like he has kind of devoted himself beyond live action or animation and is like way more interested and it's like i've i've reshaped the imagination of the american public and now i want to reshape the landscape and so there is this excerpt that i read and i think i linked it in the outline that like ended with him like turning back to his interest in trains and i think that sort of signifies this is really when he ramps up building Disneyland as like his yes. like physical fiefdom. Yes. And things are starting to begin to bleed into one another where it's, it's pretty clear that the productions that they're doing, uh, the cartoons that they're doing, they're doing it with an awareness that there's merch and there's tie-ins and we're, we're creating a totalizing Disney experience. Uh, Without a doubt, you've got 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, uh, which is this big live action uh, goof with um, Kirk Douglas. That's actually one of my favorites. I love that one. <laughs> hey, lads. That's a great one. Uh, two Academy Awards, Best Art Direction, Best Special, special Effects. And uh, yeah, there. that's uh, 54. Now you have... Davy Crockett at this time too. And this is all happening around the time of Disneyland kicking off. Davy Crockett was a five-part serial. It aired on ABC from 54 to 55. Now, to get Disneyland uh, built, they were down, uh, I believe it's Roy who was quoted as saying, they were down to one car for the family. Uh, they had mortgaged the, all it. they the had mortgaged Roy everything uh, to put wow. this park together it's not easy to buy a ton of land in california right <laughs> at any time and to and to make this park and so they cut a deal mm. with abc abc was coming to them had come to them for years wanting shows well tv's a lot different from film and they wouldn't do it they wouldn't do it. Well, finally, they agreed. And I think as part of that, they had a loan written or they were given a part of the deal was they'd be advanced. I think it was half a million dollars in order for them to finish the park. Well, so now you see how this all kind of works together with the capital. So capital wants one thing. You're going to do it kind of grudgingly, but it's going to dovetail into the other thing that you really want to do. Davy Crockett is a great example of this. I think it's one of two shows that they were that they promised ABC. They promised ABC the Mickey Mouse Club, which the Mickey Mouse Club uh, was revived, 
and put on television so it could reach even more uh, impressionable brains. Um, and then the Davy Crockett show. Now, this blew my mind. I, I rewatched some of this David, Davy Crockett stuff. All the new Disney uh, stuff on Disney Plus comes with a trigger warning. <laughs> Dumbo <laughs> has a trigger warning. Oh, if it was made before like 1962 or something, right? It's all like... right. Yeah, right. you may encounter something that ruffles your feathers. And yeah. yeah, well, so listen, the show sparked heated debate with many questioning whether Crockett was really deserving of the amount of attention that he was receiving. Letter writers also questioned the series' historical accuracy. Who cares? The show <laughs> was really popular. They were combined into a feature-length movie in 55, uh, these fellows, the guys who made the film, uh, toured the United States, Europe, and Japan, hugely popular, popular. Davy, Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier, right? You, you remember yeah, this, yeah? yeah. <clears throat> this is what <clears throat> struck me. Um, by the end of 1955, Americans had purchased over, in today's money, had purchased over, it is actually in 2001 money. So it's even less $2 billion worth of Davy Crockett merch. <laughs> wow. That's a lot of coonskin caps. <laughs> that is all in various wasteland dumps. Oh, yeah. Base. yeah unreal. T T B. That's a, that's a B. Yeah, yeah that's wild. And that, to me, when I was researching this, that's the moment. I'm sure it had already happened before, but they, I think they realized we can tie in. We got ABC. We're reaching millions. Oh yeah. You make that kind of money and it, it then guides all of your project decisions from then. That's you got to say, well, is there an opportunity to make a gang of money selling something from this? Right. No question. Stuffed animals, whatever. Yeah. No question. Yeah. Well, so wow. I want to talk about a couple of things about Disneyland, but Blauer, it looks like you have a few things here. So Disneyland opened in 55. Uh, what's some of the background of this, some of the ooky spooky uh, business? Well, and this isn't even necessarily ooky spooky. It can get ooky spooky if you want it to. And <laughs> I think you do want to. But what is confirmed is that they uh partnered with or commissioned uh sri which is the stanford research institute which is famous for doing remote viewing and like astral projection uh experiments in the 70s and like doing all kinds of other weird tech and like pseudo paranormal stuff for military and intelligence agencies throughout the cold war but they commissioned um, SRI to basically find the optimal like spot for Disneyland Park and like the optimal like yeah just everything about it they wanted you know it to be optimized for everything and um, one of the guys that was like they had like two point men like Harrison Pierce or Price and uh, C.V. Wood, Cornelius Vanderbilt Wood, um, who was interested in ley lines and was a student of Alfred Watkins who popularized 
the sort of uh, paranormal idea of ley lines, which basically is like this sort of paranormal magical idea of like lines in the earth that give energy, you know, very woo woo kind of moderate, like mm -hmm. proto new age kind of thing. And so this is confirmed that one of the lead guys in designing the park or finding the right place for the park was involved in that kind of like magical geology kind of thing. And so basically that's, a, that's amazing. Yeah. And so <laughs> basically amazing. the extrapolation is there's a book um, about it by Walter Bosley or Bosley called latitude 33 because uh, Disneyland is on latitude 33 called and so it's latitude 33 key, keys of the kingdom and his whole argument is that uh, Disneyland was specifically designed by the Stanford Research Institute uh, fellow or whatever to like optimize like the weird telluric energies of these ley lines and that like one of like the central points of where like these certain lines converge is that like the King Arthur carousel in uh, Disneyland, which allegedly I haven't been in a long, long time, but allegedly has all kinds of weird symbols to it. So. Yeah. Well, and you have, don't you have club 33 or was that in. You have club 33 in uh, like the new Orleans square. And so, yeah, and there's like all kinds of other like weird lore and like hidden information about the parks. You have like confirmed that there are like vast networks of tunnels underneath <laughs> oh, the yeah. parks. Whenever there's tunnels, whenever there's secret tunnels, <laughs> I, my ears perk up yeah. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And of course their explanation is, well, that's just for the, the cast members and the, janitorial yeah. and maintenance to go back and forth but it's like come on you have like a yeah. <laughs> you have like a veritable like underground city underneath the city basically that you've already built right you know yeah so cool. yeah it is it's so interesting well huh. so when this park opened uh, <laughs> uh <laughs> it was it was not uh a great day and uh let me see they called the well, did they consult i mean did they consult the astrological charts to make sure we that we could was... go back and look couldn't we yeah. <laughs> yeah the opening of disneyland was called black sunday disneyland opened on july 17th 1955 in anaheim california uh forged tickets so there's some comeuppance for his world war one forgery forged tickets were bringing more visitors than anticipated adding to a line that trailed seven miles long. With temps soaring up to 100 degrees, the new asphalt was melting women's high heels. Drinking fountains were defunct thanks to a plumber's strike, and some of the rides malfunctioned. Critics blasted the opening, calling it Black Sunday. Uh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Not a good start. Nope. Welcome to Disney yeah. World. Uh, Disneyland making a movie making a movie is a is a lot different than uh than trying to run something like that right that's uh 
But now it's iconic. Now you can't imagine Disney without the theme park, and it is the granddaddy of them all. They're all based on this. This is an entirely new concept. Uh, I've never been to land, but as a child, I, I was taken to Disney World where the programming was enhanced. Uh, <laughs> well, and it's like mm-hmm. in like a meta way, the fact that the opening was so terrible, yeah, sort of bought, it just sort of like fuels the narrative of it as this magical place. It's sort of like, you know, after the going through the trials and tribulations of asphalt that melted high heels and no working water fountains, you know, look at us now. You're and, right. Yeah. It just contributes to the myth, right? Yeah. yeah. So it's like if, if you're an especially paranoid person, it's like maybe that that's what the astro- astrological science said. Put it on the worst day possible. <laughs> right. Yeah. They, I wouldn't put it past them. I have a few things a to read. Yeah. Yeah. It could have been. Yeah. So Walt delegated the running of the park to subordinates while he remained the chief strategist. And as always, he kept shuffling the positions whenever he detected that someone was uh, arrogating too much power to himself. But while executives came and went, the park's press agent told a New Yorker reporter that Walt was clearly in command. You never know when you'll bump into Walt prowling around the park in an old sweater, checking on whether a dead light bulb you reported earlier has been replaced, the agent said, or timing the rides, or complaining that a ride not operating today sign is inartistically lettered, or plotting what to tear down next and what to put up instead. And though Walt did appoint the operations committee to deal with the day-to-day operations of the park and the management committee on which he himself sat to make policy and set long-term goals, the agents stressed, the first thing you have to understand is that this whole place is Walt. <laughs> um, I'm not done. You gotta, you gotta, we're gonna get to Khrushchev and an international incident in, in relation to Disneyland. Buckle up for this one. By the, <laughs> by the time Walt installed the Matterhorn, the monorail, and the submarine ride, the park was attracting over 5 million visitors a year and was considered one of the essential destinations in the country for foreign dignitaries. Prime Minister Jawaharlal Nehru of India told uh, LA Mayor Samuel Yorty that the main reason he was visiting the area was to see Disneyland. And Nehru's daughter said, We look forward to Disneyland as much as anything on our trip. Nehru spent three hours there. Secretary of State John Foster Dulles, in extending Indonesian President Sukarno's thanks to Walt after a visit, wrote, I am told that in Indonesia, there are two prominent Americans who are affectionately known by their first names, Ike and Walt. One African president continued his visit even after his PR officer keeled over and died of a heart attack while while dining at the park's plantation restaurant. Now, the passion of foreign dignitaries to see what was now one of America's landmarks was so intense that once it even triggered an international incident. Russian Premier Nikita Khrushchev was making a tour of America in September 1959. Khrushchev's wife, Nina, had seen a Disney film in 1942, found herself entranced, and requested that during the visit she and her family be allowed to see Disneyland. One film, 1942, 17 years later, it, it's going to cause World War III. Walt and Lillian uh, planned to welcome the party and escort them around the park. But when Khrushchev arrived in L.A. from New York, he was told that his security could not be assured and that the, that the trip to Disneyland would have to be canceled. 
Khrushchev exploded as the New York Times described it. I would very much like to see to go see Disneyland, he shouted. But then we cannot guarantee your security, they say. Then what must I do? Commit suicide? <laughs> Continuing to boil. Khrushchev. That's pretty dramatic. A little much. So Russian. Uh, Khrushchev asked the gathered journalists, what is it? Is there an epidemic of cholera or something? Or have gangsters taken hold of the place that can destroy me? He was still fuming at a star-studded luncheon in his honor at the 20th Century Fox studio. LA Police Chief William Parker said, because Mrs. Khrushchev had passed her husband a note while he spoke, reminding him of the insult. <laughs> we have come to this town where lives the cream of American art, he began as his voice shook with indignation. And just imagine, I, a premier, a Soviet representative, when I came here to this city, I was given a plan, a program of what I was to be shown and whom I was to meet, but just now I was told that I could not go to Disneyland. <laughs> he closed. I cannot find words to explain this to my people. It goes on. But Khrushchev went even further, denied his visit. He told an LA audience that he could return to Russia even faster than he had arrived. If you want to go on with the arms race, very well, he warned. We accept that challenge. As for the output of rockets, well, they are on the assembly line. This is the most serious question. It is one of life or death, ladies and gentlemen, one of war and peace. And this serious question about the fate of civilization was raised all because Nikita Khrushchev had been, as he put it, deprived of the pleasure of visiting the city of fantasy. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Uh, yeah. I mean, well, I guess when you're a so when you're a Soviet, you see the name Disneyland, and you're like, "Oh yes, this is like our Leningrad," you know? <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> it tracks for them. Right. Right. Well, it does sound like it was almost getting the, the way you described it. If I had never heard the word Disney, I, I would think you're describing like a new country that had just formed mm. of some sort. Yeah. Right. And oh, now the dignitaries are sort of wanting to open diplomatic relations with this new country mm. that happens to be a theme park. It's fast. It's fascinating. It, it really is. And we are coming into the final act of this episode of Art of Darkness. We will go on on the After Dark episode. Uh, we were arriving at the end of Walt's time on this earth. He, uh, we have a little more here from Blauer about the CIA. He, he began to envision Disney World, so an even bigger Disneyland, uh, a second park in Florida. In 61, uh, well, in 60, Pollyanna, Swiss Family Robinson came out. In 61, The Absent-Minded Professor came out, in addition to uh, 101 Dalmatians, which is a classic. It's just a classic. It's, it's fantastic. It really holds up. It's jazzy. It has a sense of humor. It's adult but appealing to kids. It's, it's, it's almost a perfect film. It really is. Um, and uh, you've got the Mickey Mouse Club, as we know it, M-I-C-K-E-Y, that has, has kicked off. It's a television show, the whole nine yards, it's all happening. And he, he's turning his attention now to this second park. So let's, let's get into that a little bit, Blauer. I had read that, he, that he, he hired CIA guys to help him get the land for Disney World. And they, he had to do it through a bunch of shell companies because if 
landholders discovered that Disney was buying this land, property values, like they would have held out and they would have raked them over the coals. That's about what I know about Disney World. But uh, what did you learn here? Well, that's about it. And they called it the Florida Project. Um, And yeah, they hired, it wasn't exactly CIA, but it was, so they hired this like firm and uh, the two people were Wild Bill Donovan, who is more or less the father of the CIA, and Paul Hellowell, who was, he was the main point man for the Florida project. And he had been involved in like all kinds of CIA ops in Guatemala and Cuba and all that stuff. And of course, you know, the axiom goes, you're never really former CIA. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, more or less hiring CIA to, yeah, do what you said, like set up shell corporations, like to the extent of like creating fake towns and like fake town charters to like keep property taxes low. And like it's this was all like a duplication of what Hellowell had done in Guatemala to uh, instigate the coup in Guatemala in 1953. And like this isn't just a case of like, you know, sometimes a corporation will hire like an ex-military man to like straighten up the ship and like do, you know, run it like a boot camp and like, you know, keep, you know, everything tiptoe and stuff like that. That's one thing, but like this was operationally and like every sense of the word identical to the CAA playbook of doing coup d'etats in Central and South America, but this was in Florida. That's fascinating. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah like y- you could, if you're, uh, <laughs> you know, if you consider that a rogue CIA cell, you could be in another part of the CIA and, 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 get some intel across your desk and you're thinking i think someone's trying to take over florida like i think yeah. <laughs> some shadowy cabal is trying to amass power in florida there's right. a mouse right. there's a mouse yeah. uh, trying to take over their flag is a mouse that's, what can it mean that's that's wild yeah huh well and then you've got the cia baked in into the operation right so now if there is something nefarious to, to, to Disney world, they're there from the get go, right? There's all kind, you know, Disney has to be a psyop to some extent. Right. So yeah. yeah, yeah, it's there. It's there right from the first shovel in the ground. Well, before that. Well, and so now yeah, I mean, you can't yeah. help, but think about Florida's proximity to Cuba and like all the weird, like Cuban exile unrest, like, in the 60s and you know giant prayer assassination it gets into a whole thing yeah it could certainly be like a a a surveillance nerve center for that part of the country for sure yeah it gives you great cover and a great deal of power and that area as well it's not coastal it's inland florida uh and you essentially i don't know what orlando was before Disney World, <laughs> but it, it wasn't. I don't think it was much. I yeah. think it was like it was a like swamp. swamp land, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he would never le- uh, live to see Disney World completed. Uh, Walt had a little uh, problem with cigarettes, so I'm going to read a few paragraphs. Uh, he had uh, surgery, and 
they did an x-ray and they found a lump the size of a walnut and um, he had lung cancer. He'd smoked for years since the Red Cross in France, chain smoking, nervously smoking, stained fingers, voice raw and hoarse. Maybe that's how he got the Mickey voice. Uh, Diane, his daughter, would recall, I just can't picture him without a cigarette. His hacking cough was dreaded not only among his employees, who had long regarded it as a kind of klaxon of his impending arrival, <laughs> which, boy, you talk about turning into the villain, right? But among his own family. Sharon had once asked him not to attend a school play she was acting in because she said if she heard him cough, she would forget her lines. Lillian said that Walt had burned more furniture and more rugs and more everything with his cigarettes than anybody I ever knew. Diane claimed that one could always identify Walt's butts in an ashtray because he would smoke the cigarettes down to the last quarter inch until he could barely hold them. He would forget to put them out, she said. He would light them and get carried away with what he was thinking about and just hold them. Sometimes he would hold them in his mouth or in his hand and get an ash on it two inches long, which you see in some of the animation. Uh, he was often encouraged to quit. At one point, he switched to a pipe, which he had smoked as a young man. Then when the pipe burned a hole in his pocket, he summarily decided that pipe smokers were too slow and laid back, and he abandoned the pipe. Uh, in 1957, uh, Gunther Lessing celebrated his first anniversary of not having had a cigarette. Lessing made a point of telling Walt that Walt wasn't interested. When doctors came to the studio to lecture the staff on the hazards of smoking, Walt wouldn't attend. One Christmas, Diane bought him two cartons of filtered cigarettes, thinking they would at least be better for him than the filterless ones he smoked, and Walt promised her he would use them. He just broke off the filters. I didn't tell her how <laughs> I would use them, he joked to a confederate. Uh, yeah, during one of the last meetings with him, Ward Kimball remembered Walt breaking into a long coughing jab. When I timidly asked why he didn't give up smoking, Kimball said, Walt looked up at me, his face still red from the coughing and rasped, well, I gotta have a few vices, don't I? Uh, by this time he was importing French cigarettes. So he, he smoked for half a century and it finally caught up to him. Uh, it's the drug of choice for a lot of workaholics. Yeah, it wasn't... Um, uh, Serling, Rod yeah, Serling. Yeah, it's yeah. very similar sort of story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just it just you know four pack a day type. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Twilight Zone was like sponsored by like Winston cigarettes and stuff. Like yeah, that. it was. Yeah, the yeah. um, yeah, I think I think that's interesting. He's you have to imagine him too, chain smoking and planning Epcot Center, right, and planning right. Disney World and this really, really larger than anything hitherto conceived. Uh, I find that line where he's like, it's very interesting because it's like a weird smirking line from him. It's like, well, I have to have a few vices, don't I? It's like you have to wonder <laughs> yeah. what the, what the what, what other ones were. <laughs> yeah, that's that means at least three. So it's what like, else? Oh, hold on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't a boozer. And uh, he didn't like women. I, so. I have such <laughs> bizarre memories of Disney World. Uh, my father, who passed away when I was rather young, uh, was kind of obsessed with it in an odd way. We went more than once from North Dakota, which 
is a really big deal. It's that flights in and out of North Dakota are not cheap. It's more like flying in and out of Alaska than it is almost anywhere else in the country. And I very, very distinctly remember this dang ball at Epcot Center and, and how just obsessed and strange. This is my trigger. <laughs> like for real, I'm not even joking. Like I look at it and I just Epcot. go, yeah, it's so yeah. weird. I'm looking at it. I haven't looked at it in ages, but so much of my, the most vivid memories of my youth are, are from this and uh, just the lighting and the trees. I wonder what it would feel like if I went back, I would probably have to take some sedatives or something. Uh, probably, like, I'm probably, you, I'm, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, have you heard of that movie? I think I linked it to you guys. That movie escape from tomorrow. No, um, no, no, it's from 2013 and it's about a family on a trip to Disneyland and it's in black and white and they had to like surreptitiously film it because obviously you're not allowed to like make a movie, especially a movie of this nature at Disneyland. And like, so he does this expensive family trip to Disneyland and two things happen. One, he learns that he loses his job. So he loses his source of income to do this expensive family stuff. And then like somehow he ingests some like hallucinogenic drug. And so then the rest of the movie is like this black and white, like German expressionist freak show <laughs> of him wandering around Disneyland on this drug and stressed out about this family finances. And so, yeah, I think Kevin, that's what'll happen if you, uh, Go to, yeah, yeah, that's gonna be your experience. Uh, just such a bizarre uh, set of memories that I have around this. It's not. It's very, very, very strange. Uh, it stands for Epcot. Stands for. Oh, where did it go? I had it right here. I will find it. I, I think it's weird that mm -hmm. it's interesting that your dad chose because, like, I imagine you're you're if you're in North Dakota. Wouldn't Disneyland be closer or would it be about it, it's kind of the same difference? And frankly, yeah. flights flights down there probably at the time were, were less expensive. Uh well, that's interesting. Flight, yeah. Flights to California. No flights to world, not land. Oh, okay. Yeah, to yeah. Florida. Uh because they they would practice it's like Vegas. They would practice if you were a hayseed. Uh, they would practically pay for your flight to come down there. It's still super right. cheap to go down to Florida. Uh, yeah. California is not quite as um, uh, inexpensive. Uh, but for, I don't know why. Uh, I, I don't know if he had ever been to Disneyland. He may have been, but for whatever reason, this was just the pinnacle of life was so us sick. getting down to Disney World. It, it was like this. It was like like my family family's sort of messed up secular mecca. Uh, <laughs> it's that way for a lot of a lot of people. Yeah, that yeah. way for Chris yeah. Jeff. Chris Chris Jeff was a <laughs> yeah, a right. Muslim denied his visit to Mo uh, Mecca. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. right. <laughs> but yeah, I, and it's like I remember those ads, and like I feel like it was like the mid or late nineties of like the family waking up super early, and like there's like I just remember this image of like a kid going, it's like we're going to Disneyland or something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. And it was mm -hmm. like this encapsulation of that feeling of waking up before the sun rises and getting on the plane and going to Disneyland. 
And yeah, it's like this bizarre programming of like, you must come home kind of feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, uh, there's that there was, we went to, when I was a kid, we drove down to Florida. I'm from Michigan. We drove down there. We drove, it's two day drive. We drove overnight sleeping in the back of the conversion van, you know, as my parents switched drivers and I have very distinct memories of it. And I was quite, I was like five, you know, I was quite young. Um, but you know, it's one thing is interesting about that is remember like anytime, like uh, when they win the Super Bowl, do they still do this when they win the Super Bowl? Whoever's like the MVP or whatever, they, well, you know, what are you going to do to celebrate? Oh, we're going to Disneyland. They like memed this idea that that was the, that was the, the dream you got to live into as a celebration of this thing. Right. Yeah. That's yeah, fast. It's it is. It's yeah. it was, you know, one, one other thing, quick thing on the Disneyland, Disney world stuff. There is a chart I saw recently. I should have saved it for this. That shows like um, one line is like housing prices relative to income. And one's like inflation and they're kind of paired with each other. And then the next one is Disney tickets and they just go through the roof. Like they have, they have like exponentially grown in cost apparently. Mm. Yeah. From, you know, we were kids, they were like 50 bucks or 30 bucks. And now they're like 250 bucks. It's nuts. Yeah. And they trap you there for the day too. That's their whole scheme. You're going to yeah. end up getting banged over the head for $30 burgers. If you want a right. decent meal and they, right. they, get, you, right. they get you through yeah. the door. Yeah. Uh, well, we are coming to the end here and uh, I want to read here. So Lillian and Diane got a call from Tommy Wilk that Walt had been taken, had taken a turn for the worse. Oh, I have to go back because I had it. Uh, Epcot stands for Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow. <laughs> uh, the Florida Project. Right. Experimental. Yeah. yeah, it was a World's Fair inspired park, right? But what a bizarre experimental prototype community of tomorrow. All right, great. Um, in any case, uh, they went over to see uh, their father at the hospital. Diane saw her husband enter Walt's room, then suddenly back out. And uh, he saw the body and Walt's hands were folded on his chest. Uh, quoting, Uncle Roy was standing at the foot of his bed, massaging one of dad's feet. So Roy was there at the end, massaging his brother's feet. Wow. Diane later recalled just kind of caressing it, and he was talking to him. It sounded something like, well, kid, this is the end, I guess. Sharon and Bob Brown arrived shortly afterward, and Brown asked Diane if she would accompany Sharon into the room. Diane took Sharon's hand and placed it on Walt's. Now, Daddy... Now you won't hurt anymore, Sharon whispered. Walt had died at 9.35 a.m. on December 15th of cardiac arrest due to bron, uh, car a carcinoma, lung cancer. Mm. And this is quite intense. I took care of Walt in his final days, a nurse wrote the family, and just want you to know that the poor man was so fearful. Ooh, I just want you to know that the poor man was so fearful. Wow. Uh, so that was, that's the end of Walt Disney's life. Now I have something funny to uh, leaven that slightly. Uh, what do you think uh, Walt Disney's last words were, Brad? 
What do you think? Oh, I think I know this. It was Kurt Russell. <laughs> how do you Wasn't know it? that? Yeah. How do you know I just that? remember that as a piece of trivia. I, yeah. Did you know Kurt that, Russell... Lauer? Is, is that common knowledge? I was Kurt... going to say, I was going to think something that damn owl. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, it's uh no, and so yeah, Russell was still a teen in 1966 when Disney died. He was wrapped up in the Disney system though, wasn't he? He had been in some Disney movies or something. Yeah. yeah. Russell told like, like the computer wore tennis shoes and all that sort of Okay. There was yeah. that weird phase in like late 60s, early 70s of like weird gimmick comedies like La Shaggy DA and yeah, right. <laughs> like, like right. Magnificent Merlin Man and his Magnificent Mobile kind of like right. those right. weird kind of movies. Right, 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 right. Yeah, apparently Kurt Russell was the last thing that Disney wrote. And he said, Kurt said, we did have a personal relationship. We played ping pong at lunch sometimes. He'd come down to set. We'd go watch movies at that studio he was making, and he'd come down and ask if I wanted to see them. He'd, he'd take me around and introduce me to all the uh, different departments at Disney, and at one point gave me a bunch of original photo cells uh, that they uh, make the backdrop drawings of the characters and stuff like that. So uh, Apparently, he thought of him as a bit of a grandfather. Um, so mm. Kurt... Kurt Russell. Could have, he could have been the next Bobby Driscoll, though. Ah, yeah. Well, I have one more reading from the book. Then we'll ask the classic closer question. Uh, and then we will do another 30 minutes on the Patreon episode uh, with Blauer about some especially dark business with the CIA. I don't feel like I got too much into the whole monarch programming MK Ultra, deep, deep, deep rabbit hole, Alice in Wonderland, Wizard of Oz business. But the, mm -hmm, yeah, the lawyer just gave me a thumbs up. Oh, OK. OK. The lawyer yeah. who has you held hostage there in, yes. in Michigan yeah. just off camera. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah, OK, good. <laughs> tell, tell him he's not allowed to talk about the modern program. <laughs> it's like the, the, the mouse is there with a, with a gun. Get, get on with it. Um, all right. Uh, I'm going to stick to my day job. Uh, so here you go. Uh, he was frozen. At least that was the rumor that emerged shortly after his death and quickly became legend. Walt Disney had been cryogenically preserved, hibernating like Snow White and Sleeping Beauty to await the day when science could revive him and cure his disease. Though it is impossible to, de to determine exactly, the source of the rumor may have been a tabloid, a tabloid named National Spotlight, whose correspondent claimed to have sneaked into St. Joseph's Hospital, where Disney had expired, disguised himself as an orderly, picked the lock on a storage room door, and spotted Disney suspended in a metal cylinder. The story had also surfaced in 1969 in a French publication, EC Paris, which said it based its report on individuals close to Disney, and it was repeated in the National Tattler, an American scandal rag, which added that Disney had instructed doctors to thaw him in 1975. Yet another supermarket tabloid, Midnight, under the headline, Walt Disney is being kept alive in deep freeze, quoted both a studio librarian who remembered Disney accumulating a vast file of film material on uh, cryogenics and an acquaintance of Disney's who said that the producer was obsessed with these movies. 
a writer for the Mickey Mouse Club television show produced under Disney auspices seemed to corroborate the librarian's recollection by recalling that Disney had once asked him about cryogenics and that the writer had then had the studio library staff research the subject. Ward Kimball, a puckish animator at the studio, took some pride in keeping the rumor afloat, and Disney himself may have lent it credence. According to one account, just weeks after his death, studio department heads were invited to a screening room uh, with nameplates on the seats, then watched a film of Disney sitting at his desk and eerily pointing to and addressing each of them on future plans. He concluded by smiling knowingly and saying that he would be seeing them soon. In truth, Disney's final destination was fire, not ice. He had been cremated and his ashes interred in a mausoleum in a remote corner of the Forest Lawn Cemetery in Glendale, California, not far from his studio. So he made a movie to bring himself back from the dead uh, right. to, tell, to tell his uh, staff what's coming next. Wow. And, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I absolutely believe that he would be the kind of megalomaniac to do like a kind of if you're watching this i'm dead now <laughs> yeah, that's right movie yeah, right. like to his uh board and like yeah. the whole thing about him being cry cryogenically frozen is sort of metaphysically true in a sense because what was that <laughs> yes. quote earlier about like everything at disneyland just screamed walt or whatever is and so walt. it's like yeah is yeah. walt and so it's like he really does, he did successfully alchemize or transubstantiate himself into this corporate entity that sort of yeah. continues on his project. And so in yeah. that sense, he really is eternal and immortal. The true, he is. the true magical, last magical act of the Sorcerer King. Yeah, yeah, no, I abs absolutely, absolutely. And yeah, and that's why that's why the ice cryogenically frozen thing sticks so much because it like it encapsulates kind of what you're saying. Because yeah. in our head, he is still alive and he could come back at any time, and he he never really goes away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. That's very insightful. I was going to say that is the life exactly. and times of Walt Disney. Yeah, that's the end of this episode. Uh, what would Walt be doing today, Brad first, then Blower? <laughs> okay, yeah, I, I mean, he would. Uh, they'd thaw him after he's been thawed out. <laughs> he looks around and gobbles up the last two or three IPs that are not already owned by Disney. <laughs> Whatever this happened to be, I'm not even sure what doesn't count as Disney anymore. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I think I think that's what he, he keeps did. orchestrating the the next thing. Yeah, yeah. What do you yeah. what do you think if Walt Disney is transplanted into into 2021 Blower? What do you think he's up to? I think I'm wondering if he would ever run for president. Mm. Maybe not if he's a really a Spaniard. Um, <laughs> run for president but then again i think you know he might look at presidency as below his station so i think i would i'll answer this way i think he if he's cryogenically frozen and then he's 
unthawed or dethawed, the first words he would say in 2021 are, I need a cigarette. <laughs> yeah. Tremendous. For sure. Very good. Yes. No filters. The French, yeah. the French sort. Blauer, thanks so much for coming on this episode. We're going to do some more uh, again. Yeah, for, I appreciate, for I appreciate yeah. your time, man. And thanks what you brought, Absolutely. brought to it, man. That was fantastic. Yeah, you really yeah. added a lot of flavor and some insights. And uh, it, it's a pleasure to get to hang out this way, too. You're fun, a lot of fun on the Bird website. Where can people find you? Where can people find Apocalypse Confidential? Uh, let us know here now. Oh, yeah, you can find me on the Bird website at uh, Blauer Geist. It's Blauer, B-L-A-U-E-R underscore Geist, G-E-I-S-T. And Apocalypse Confidential is Apocalypse. I'm not going to spell all that out. Apocalypse <laughs> hyphen confidential dot com. Uh, we, we've got an yeah. upper middle brow audience yeah, to be able to figure out how to spell that. If you can't spell apocalypse, <laughs> you're not going to get it anyway. Uh, Blauer, I got to ask you, and you, tell me, what's the origin of the name? It means blue ghost, right? Blauer Geist. What is yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I had an old account that got suspended for... Uh, undisclosed reasons <laughs> that was uh violating disney ip probably right, exactly right. shenanigans um, for uh spamming their uh, replies with mk ultra information <laughs> um called the blue writer because i was inspired at the time i was like writing some story that was like inspired by like there was this like weird art magazine and like berlin in like the 1910s called the blue writer or whatever that is in german blue blue or writer or whatever blau. um and so blau writer and so i was inspired by that and so i was just like all right i'll just use that as the name and then when i got a uh, band and i came back i was like well what do i come back as obviously i have to come back as a ghost and basically uh. i rent I ran it through different, like, uh, different, like, uh, Google translations. Like, I think I did, like, try to do, like, it in Gaelic, and it was, like, something that was, like, indecipherable. But then I came upon Blower Guys. And I was like, it's pretty good. That works. <laughs> I'm glad I know the origin story of that name. I always smile when I see Blower on the bird website. So go give yeah. him give him a follow. When he wakes up from a nap, you'll know it. And uh, But it's not time for a nap now. It's time to do another 30 minutes on the After Dark. I'm Kevin Kautzman. You can find that at patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. We're at artofdarkpod.com. And on the bird website, Brad manages that very well. We're getting lots of feedback from people. People like to tell us who we should do. We're getting excited for a lot of cool stuff coming up. We got what? Frank Herbert, Bill Hicks. We've got a, a great guest who's going on, uh, going to have his own Amazon comedy special coming up. So we're going to tease that a little bit. He's going to join us to talk about the, the, the great Bill Hicks. Who else are we doing here for the rest of the year, Brad? Uh, James Joyce. Um, with is, forest of symbols. Uh, which forest of symbols will be coming on to do that and then uh mf doom just after the first of the year so oh tremendous yeah all right boys well listen listen i want you to join me now <laughs> in about five minutes on uh after dark hey there hi there, hi there. <laughs> try not to get too triggered your handler is waiting <laughs>